You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. We hope everybody is continuing to stay safe and healthy as America slowly and responsibly reopens wherever you are listening to this. Again, we hope you're safe and healthy, and please continue to follow the guidelines. Set the example that we know all veterans and all service members are the people who are leading the way in this fight against the coronavirus. So once again, uh, we are wishing you well and hoping you guys are doing the best as we get set for this Memorial Day weekend. We all know that Memorial Day is a very special weekend uh, for us veterans as we continue to honor our fallen brothers and sisters and all those who made the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of their country and their fellow service members and their families and loved ones. So keep them in our thoughts and our prayers. And this really is a great episode to listen to for this weekend, especially if you're on a long drive somewhere, heading to the beach, or you know, just going to see friends and family. This is kind of the perfect episode that you want to dive into because uh, it's a little bit lengthier than most of our episodes, but I absolutely loved talking to this week's guest. Before we get to the story, though, make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Subscribe on YouTube, really continuing to grow that Hazard Ground followership, and we certainly want to make sure you guys are helping us grow this community as well. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Love hearing from you guys. Certainly appreciate the feedback, and don't forget you can send an email to producer at hazardground.com. Give us guest suggestions as well. Let us know what you think of the show. Finally, go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we'll donate it right back to some of the charities that have been featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. With all that out of the way, an amazing story on this week's show. And joining us this week on the Hazard Ground is currently a staff sergeant in the United States Army. He is a Green Beret and an 18 Delta in Special Forces, which is a medic. He lost both of his legs during his second trip to Afghanistan. He is currently recovering while on active duty. He is Justin Lassick joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Justin, welcome, brother. Good to talk to you. What's, what's going on, Mark? And hello, everybody. All right. So much to get to. I left out sort of a big part of uh, what happened to you in Afghanistan on purpose because I want it to kind of unfold organically for the audience. Uh, but we always like to start back at the beginning. Before we get there, currently, as I just said, you are on active duty going through the medical board process to retire as you lost both your legs below your knee in an explosion, correct? Yep. And then uh, the whole COVID pandemic has put that on a slight pause. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's the general plan. All right. So tell me how and why you got into the Army. Well... That's like a long story or a short story type thing. But uh, the quick summary up front, the bluff, is I wanted to do something that that was, was something uh, beyond the normal human experience. And uh, I always wanted, wondered if I could handle kind of extreme circumstances, worst case scenarios. And so, yeah, that, that would be the 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 prime of it. I, I had a strength and conditioning company before I was in the army and I was training a lot of special operations guys and I had an interest in it. Kind of talk about this in some of the episodes of a podcast I've recorded, but, uh, I kind of grew up with like kind of framing everything around mental toughness and deflecting everything emotionally. And then got into, uh, kind of building myself up from a performance standard in, uh, with strength and conditioning, competed in weightlifting and stuff like that after some college football. So 
by the time I got to my mid twenties, I was kind of trying to figure out if I wanted to kind of sacrifice my freedom in order to contribute to what was a lingering war effort, but also challenging myself and whether or not I could handle it. And that was pretty much to test myself is the quick answer. Sure. Where were you? Where'd you go to school? I went to Georgia Southern University. Okay. And I have an exercise physiology degree. Graduated there in 2008. Go Eagles, right? <laughs> I guess. They, they, <laughs> they, they weren't so awesome in football when I was there. And then I haven't really followed them since I left. But the university kept growing, so that's a good thing. It is. They're actually pretty good. And for those who, again, listening, I'm here in Atlanta. So Georgia Southern, uh, you know, Southern over state or state over Southern, depending on who you are. But nonetheless. Um, so you, you finished college, right? I did. Yeah. Okay. I graduated. I started, I started grad school, quit that almost went to the Marine Corps as an officer, quit that, uh, ran a guy's gym. They Mark Ripito who has a starting strength book for, uh, strength and conditioning stuff. And then I started my company there in 2009. Well, and that's why I, I was leading to with the college degree, did the officer route ever sort of intrigue you? It did. However, and it's, it's funny because I'm talking to an officer, so this is not a dig. But <laughs> I don't the, trust the, me. You're not going to offend me. <laughs> the standard, the standard thing in the military is the officers have some sort of uh, distance from the actual doing of certain things, and that, that's not a dig on them. It's just that it's a lot of administrative stuff. I have a lot of respect for my chain of command, all the way up to the guys that I know with three and four stars on their chest. But I wanted to be a dude on the ground. And I actually looked at a lot of options to try and become an officer and still get my way into special operations quickly. So that was, I knew I wanted to be in special operations. And the only thing I found that you could really go to selection and kind of get going quickly in special operations was a PJ route, like in the reserves or something like that. So otherwise you'd have to do some regular uh, military time. And I had a lot of friends that were in the regular military and special operations friends. And I just knew I wanted to avoid the conventional time, especially because I was 26 turning 27 by the time I was in basic. So I wanted to be a dude. And if I was going to be honest, I had kind of had this like archetype of what I wanted to be. And it was, it kind of built up to what we call it CAG. It's an older term, but like the yep. Delta force operator, sure. yeah. I, that, that's kind of what I wanted to ascend to. And interestingly, I was going to try to go to selection this year had I not been hurt uh, for that. But it, the point is, is that I, I wanted to be someone that was like, doing the actual job on the ground and then being utilized for my critical thinking and uh, like intangibles as opposed to just like, uh, you know, when you're a ranger private, you kind of, or maybe in the Marine Corps, you kind of have like that top down type orders of you're going to complete this task and you execute. And then once you ascend to a certain point, then you uh, garner the respect of your peers and your command that you can have a little more latitude and maybe some mission planning or how you go about things. So I kind of wanted to hit the ground running with that regard. And so I looked at the PJ route. Uh, I had a background in physiology, anatomy, and uh, but I wanted to have more of a combat role. And, and the PJs, uh, you know, I've taken PJs on mission as a Delta and uh, they're very useful. But I wanted to be, I wanted to be, I wanted to be in like, I wanted to do combat and everything. I just wanted to do shit. And, uh, <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to be in shit and I wanted to do it. I wanted to be in combat and I wanted to think and I wanted to be useful. And, uh, so that's kind of the summary right there. And to your point, listen, um, I think it just depends on the kind of officer that you're dealing with. Some guys don't mind rolling up their sleeves and getting their elbows dirty and others aren't cut from that cloth. That's okay. There's a spot for everybody. I always say, and you know, the army puts people where they're supposed to be. So, uh, as you, have trained with special forces guys and everything you completely knew what you were getting into as far as 
going through basic and then going right to assessment selection and everything else? Like you didn't have any, any worries about the physical portion of things, obviously. I didn't have worries about the, the physical portion. It was more of not maybe some of the, maybe the emotional, just in the sense that I would have to deal with basic and all that in your 26, 20, where'd you go to school? By the way, I went to Loyola in Maryland. And then what, and then you went to like an officer type basic. Yeah. I mean, I, I did, I did our ROTC. So we had our five week advance camp at, uh, at Fort Lewis. So that you're was, around, you're around like aged and like, perf, you know, yes, guys that had all graduated. pretty much college. I mean, there were a couple of prior service guys who were going back to school, uh, you know, who might've been 22, 23, 24, 25, but most of the, most of us were 18, 19, 20 year old kids. Okay. Well, I guess it may have been similar, but you kind of have like a, a different category of people. I, I don't think it's better or worse, but like when I went through infantry basic, I was 26 and 27 and I had a lot of 18, 19 year old dudes sure. who hadn't really been. Well, you got life experience. Life <laughs> before. Yeah. So it's like, hey, stop fucking wiping your nose on things. Like it was like simple things like that that were driving me insane. And I was in charge the whole time. So. Uh, that was the quote unquote irritating part, even though I love those guys. And if I saw them, I probably wouldn't recognize them because they all shaved heads at the time and I've been blown up too many times. But so I, I knew what I was getting into and I knew it was going to suck for a while is kind of where I'm getting with this. And uh, the the experience is like basic always is inherently supposed to suck. And then selection is inherently supposed to suck. And the Q course is made to suck also. So like I knew I was getting into that. And from the time I enlisted until the time I graduated, the green hat was almost three years to the day. Wow. That's because of the, fast. Because, of, because of the medical route. Uh, right. Like there's a whole, there's a whole additional nine month course that us medics go to in addition to the Q course. So I didn't recycle anything. I didn't recycle any part of SOCOM, which is special operations, combat medic. It's where Ranger medics go. SEALs used to go to it. Occasionally a PJ would go to it, but, uh, the, so the, that whiskey one identifier in the army is gained through SOCOM. And that nine-month course, which used to be six, they pushed it to nine. It's a very good course, but it's pretty grueling. I didn't recycle any of that. I think we started with 73 guys. And then by the end of it, the number of people in that class that had not recycled anything was 13. Wow. And then selection has similar numbers uh, all said and done from the time selection occurs to the time you graduate. So it was a, it, it was grueling, and it, it's an experience, and it frames you into a type of person uh, to do the job, and it does a very good job. And I, there can always be things that, you know, if we AAR everything in the Army, we can always improve along the way. But, uh, yeah, so I knew what I was getting into, and I knew – I did all the reading I could on the Army, special operations, the actual pipeline for what I was getting into, and so on. And obviously you went the medic route because of your background in physiology, correct? Actually, in the beginning, I didn't want to do that because I didn't oh, want to okay. be in the course as long. I wanted to be a Charlie, which is the demo engineer, which I'm super glad I didn't do that because those guys, their life on a team, they're responsible for all the property. And as an officer, I know you know the pain in <laughs> inventories and change of command inventories because the, the Charlie does that shit every day and it's miserable. So as far as the – because on a in case nobody knows, like on a special forces ODA, everybody on the team, you got – your Zulu, which is the team sergeant, you have uh, a Fox, which is the Intel sergeant, and then you have essentially two of each enlisted, the Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo. The Bravo is the weapons guy, Charlie is the engineer, the Delta is the medic, the Echo is the commo guy. And so there's two of, on a full team, there's two of all those guys. Then you have a warrant officer and an officer, and that officer is a captain. And uh, so the point of me explaining all this is that there's different S functions, S shop functions for each of those guys, because 
ideally, doctrinally, two of us, two enlisted Green Berets, can run a company-sized element of a partner force. And so we break ourselves down into these S functions so that we can easily uh, translate that into uh, the whatever force we're working with uh, of an indigenous force, whether we are doing some sort of foreign internal defense, COIN, or UW, which is unconventional warfare. So all that being said, the, the, the function of the medic admin-wise is S1, which is basically like quote unquote human resources side. So it's way easier than keeping track of like mm-hmm. tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of property yeah. on a team book. By the way, uh, not to sound insulting, but you talk like an officer, you know that, right? Yeah. Uh, you'd, you'd want that though. Like through the course, uh, when you graduate Sockham, you become an E5. And, uh, normally when you're an X-ray, someone who enjoins the army as an, uh, with a college degree, you're an E4. And so you don't get any kind of NCO rank until you graduate the Q course. But uh, I was an E5 early on. So when I went through things like small unit tactics and so on, I was treated like an E5 from the regular army because I appeared like, I don't know, like a dude that kind of knew what was going on. But mm-hmm. I, w- I, I was successful. But I, ma- I make a lot of mistakes, but I learned from them. I remember doing some really stupid stuff in SUT, like initiating ambushes when the truck was on the wrong road and stuff. But um, I learned those, luckily I learned all those, uh, lessons in something like SUT and then was able to implement things properly in combat. And I had a lot of good, um, mentors regarding combat. Cause I had an entire year before going to a combat deployment. So you signed up when, because it's three years later that you get your, your green beret. So you signed up what month and year? When, when, when I actually left for basic, that yeah. was February, 2013. It okay. took me a while to enlist, uh, because of, I, I quit on the Marine Corps, so I'm sorry, Marines, uh, but I was signed up to go to OCS, like all, all ready and everything. And then I, I, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I wanted to coach strength and conditioning. And so that's what I did. And I kind of make these decisions in my life where I do what I want to do. And uh, so the Marine Corps is very upset with me over that. And they put a hold on my record and it took, you know, contacting Marco Rubio, Senator in Florida, his, his office, because I was living in Florida at the time to be able to enlist so uh, I guess the point of that is that just because maybe somebody fucks up earlier with respect to their military career or their function, they still can be useful later, or at least I hope I was useful. But yeah, so enlisted in 2013. All right. So when you're done with all your SF training, uh, you finish Sockham in your medic school, you get your Green Beret, and you're off to which unit where? I went to 10th group, 10th Special Forces group, which is one of the active duty groups at Fort Carson, Colorado. And many people would tell you it's the best one. I would say, I mean, <laughs> right now, I'm talking to you right now. I'm looking out my, my uh, I'm sitting at my table and I'm looking out the window and I see Pike's Peak. It's a 14,000 foot peak. I've got pine trees. I've got Aspen with with the white bark out in front of me. It's beautiful. And maybe you can get something slightly similar if you're at Fort Lewis in uh, Washington State. But I mean, if you're in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, or yeah, life Bragg, sucks. <laughs> Yeah, unless you like the beach, you can go to seventh group. But I mean, as far as the active duty groups, this is I fought to come here. I had to kind of influence things to get here. So, yeah, I, I would say I, I I've loved it here, and I, and I I like the unit. Well, and without offending uh, some of my other special forces friends, uh, you know, I, I learned in my time uh, attached to you know uh, the SF community. Each group kind of takes on its own personality, uh, and that, some of that's based off of where you guys work in the world. For example, 10th Group works in Europe, so it's just a different mentality of the guys who go there than necessarily 5th Group or 7th Group who tend to work in more austere and, and not-so-pleasant environments. 
Fair. Also, we when I first got to 10th Group, we had one battalion going to Afghanistan regularly. And then we had the other battalion doing the, the UCOM mission in Europe, like you said. And then uh, uh, 10th Group, before I had gotten there, had been going to Africa. So they were pretty austere to defend uh, 10th Group a little bit. Uh, but 5th Group is out in the Middle East, uh, is their standard AO. 3rd Group was going to Afghanistan regularly, and then they took our Africa mission. And 7th Group is going to uh, South America. And then 1st Group, just to round all this out for anybody who doesn't know, 1st Group goes to uh, kind of the the Asian... Uh, AO, yeah. right. And so all of these all of these groups will rotate a company or so to Afghanistan ever since we've been there. And so there might be a conglomerate of like uh, some guard and active duty uh, companies in Afghanistan. And as the, as the the fight in Afghanistan pared down, you would have essentially a battalion sized element that would run the SOTIF. And so our for the first time in a while, I think our our SOTIF, excuse me, our battalion second battalion from tenth group would run the SOTIF. And we would deploy as an entire battalion, which sometimes you get these piecemeal companies making up a battalion-sized element to make that SOTIF in Afghanistan. So that's kind of the organizational structure of 10th Group specifically. But you're, you're right. The different groups uh, develop different personalities. And I'm, I, I wouldn't dime out other groups, but 5th uh, Group has more of an NCO-driven uh, group from what I understand just from having friends there. So I've never served in 5th Group. Uh, and then 10th Group the stereotype is having a little bit more of an officer approach. And then uh, I can't really speak for like seventh and first, uh, but, but yeah, the, the AOs definitely kind of like develop a culture and you have an institutional knowledge, not, not only in the regiment as a whole, but that also you have an institutional knowledge that develops in the unit itself. And typically that's why guys don't change groups. You know, like if you're in a group, you kind of stay there for life. You'll move within battalions and assignments within that group, but not, it's not often, correct me if I'm wrong, that guys jump from group to group. True. It's usually there's a family thing or a guy needs to be somewhere. Uh, I forget what that pro you, you helped me out uh, from the officer side. There's like a family uh, developed. Like if you have a, a child that uh, needs some extra care, whether they have a developmental disability or handicap right. or something or, or certain medical care, it's usually things like that. Or they want to be closer to a family if, if, uh, if they have roots somewhere, or if they're divorced. Uh, but typically guys will have to spend time at another unit, quote unquote, they'll have to do some sort of self-development. And, and now it's kind of, it's kind of created to do that at the four year mark around there that the guys will have to do some sort of broadening assignment for their career. And that usually goes back to Swick at Fort Bragg to teach at the schoolhouse, or they could do other things like uh, very rare, like recruiting duty, or even teaching like uh, military freefall school at Yuma, Arizona, things like that. But yeah, they'll usually come back to the unit. If they're going to, if they're doing their 20 years, they'll come back to the unit, like you said, and and continue uh, growing within the, the context of the culture in the unit. And by the way, uh, Justin mentioned a couple of acronyms just to clear it up for people who aren't military. SOTIF, Special Operations Task Force, and SWIC, Special Warfare Center and Schools. So uh, just for those who aren't familiar with the terms, I always like to make sure everybody is uh, on the same page here. All right. So you mentioned that uh, they were doing rotations to Afghanistan. When do you get to your first deployment after getting to 10th group? So I got there in May of, I graduated March of 16, got to the, the unit in around May of 16. I started training in the gym before I actually signed in when I was still on leave for a month. And then uh, the, at 10th group, and some groups do this, they we have a, uh, call it green platoon or, or something that like is something that takes the new guys and puts them in sort of course. So it kind of gives them a lot of classes on, uh, what resources they have in group. For example, 
Um, most groups have this, but you, we get told this ahead in this course at 10th group. You, we have some civilian uh, counselors that we have access to. So talking to a military mental health provider and then talking to a civilian one can have some, there's some delineation of authority there and like pros and cons of each. And so, uh, so for instance, we get classes on that, but then we also get classes on, uh, for instance, we got a lot of a very focused several days on unconventional warfare where we're looking at case studies of the past from the offices of the office of strategic services to uh splitting into the cia into sf and through vietnam and and going through there so we had a lot of uh academic focus and then we have essentially like a week of flat range uh actually about two weeks of tactical stuff to include driving under nods some familiarity stuff so when a guy shows up to a team uh, the Q course is, is very good at giving you a bunch of tools and skills, but then some of them, you, you need a little bit more practical skills to actually show up and like function on a range for the first time, uh, at, at group. So, uh, that, that initial course occurred. And then I showed up to my team in August of 16 and then roughly a year later we deployed. So I was fortunate enough to have, uh, an entire year of training and my team had already planned on doing certain types of TDY, which are temporary temporary deployment, but essentially it's a training trip somewhere not at uh, your organic uh, unit. So not at Fort Carson. We did some training trips that emulated a lot of stuff in, in combat. We're, we're halfing in, which is a helicopter aerial force. So you're, you're taking a helicopter in for infill and uh, doing a lot of uh, missions in the desert, in the mountains, in uh, cities and stuff, and essentially working on small unit tactics, the basics applied to different environments. And so that's that's where uh, small unit tactics became fun because in the course it kind of sucks. It's it's not like ranger school, but it, you're you're not sleeping, you're not eating, and uh, so we developed those types of skills. And I was able to be in a lot of different scenarios, medically and tactically, that prepared me for that first deployment. When you get to Afghanistan, what's your mission? What are you told? Kind of uh, give me the lay of the land as you get there. So I'll just, uh, uh, you know, in the military, we focus on operational security, so OPSEC. Uh, but this, the stuff I'm about to say is all, is open source. Uh, we were, f I was part of uh, an element that was fighting uh, ISIS in Afghanistan. There is an offshoot called ISIS-K, which is a pledge allegiance to the ISIS main. And so there is a portion of the country where that, that uh, area, excuse me, ISIS had control of an area and they were doing some pretty standard ISIS things uh, as far as uh, brutalizing locals. And uh, yeah, I'll just sum it up as that. They they occupied land and, and the locals lost their land. And so there were multiple efforts, especially from 10th group of different types of operations that were clearing uh, valleys in a very mountainous area. And uh, I was in a position where we went to an outpost and we lived out in uh, kind of a very rural third world environment in order to conduct combat operations against ISIS and to uh, slowly gain control of land. And I did that on both of my trips. To that end, um, let's kind of get inside your head a little bit because you wanted to go be this guy, right? You wanted to be a Green Beret. You wanted to be this, this guy in combat and this critical thinker and all those things. When you start to have your first real brush with it, does it sort of live up to the expectations that you were thinking? I mean, does that, does that first experience in combat stand out to you? It's an interesting question. Because, uh, you know, if you spend years training for something and mm -hmm. that you want to do this thing, you kind of, you, you, 
for me, I always considered how I was going to react in those situations. And I always wanted to react effectively. And so I took small unit tactics very seriously of like, what would I actually do in an environment that was like the woods in North Carolina if there were people trying to kill me? So I took all that very seriously, which is what you should be doing. And uh, I, I, I would have to, you know, you'd have to talk to my teammates to see if they thought I did a good job. But I, I think that I functioned well and I had very good uh, leadership. Uh, the guy that is my team sergeant currently was a senior Bravo on my first team. And he and I assaulted together all the time uh, during that deployment. And then there was also a we, we had the, what we call now attached infantry, but we call it uplift or whatever. It's an American infantry force that is attached to us. So there'd be an element that would guard our outpost and there'd be an element that would go on operations with us. And uh, the platoon sergeant of the one that was going to go on operations with us had spent 10 years in Ranger Regiment. And he had a very good squared away platoon. I hope all the dudes listening are enjoying that description of them. Cause, I mean, they even had a goose, <laughs> a goose team, uh, which the Carl Gustav is essentially like a rocket launcher. And you, we, we had like a rig where a guy, one guy would carry the tube and a guy would carry four rounds with your ASM rounds or HE. So ASM are anti-structural, HE is high explosive or HEDP. Uh, dual penetration so anyway like they have have gun teams they'd have goose teams like they're all ready they had snipers and so uh that that platoon sergeant was very squared away and i was like after i learned about his experience i was like all right you're going with me all the time because like i you know I, w- I had a year of training and i had done the q course but i hadn't been in combat so i want guys around me that can not only help me get better from like that classic army paradigm of the aar of what you can sustain and improve but all the after action review, but I also wanted uh, someone that was there that I could, that could, I could rely on too. Mm-hmm. Not that I couldn't rely on my guys, but you're not really like, it's not like six green berets hanging on a mission. Cause that's, that's done. We're, we're force multipliers. So we're supposed to control the element on, on the ground. And so usually you'd have maybe sometimes I was the only green beret, but you might have two green berets uh, and like a few infantry guys. And then you'd have your partner force on a, on a smaller maneuvering element. And so I just wanted I wanted like the best guys around me. So I got to have my team sergeant. I got to have that platoon sergeant. And so I learned a lot. So I guess I set myself up well, uh, looking back at it in retrospect, I was set up well by how I was groomed for combat. And I, my first team sergeant was someone who liked combat and he liked tactics. And so I got to talk to him a lot about that one-on-one as I was a very young guy. And I got what I, what I perceived was I got his respect and trust in combat. So when, when we actually started having rounds, uh, it was a, the first tick I was at, first troops in contact, which we call tick. The first tick I was in was a sniper tick. And uh, that's a little bit of a different experience because we didn't know where the guy was. I was carrying uh, a saw, which is like the light machine gun that fires the 5.56 round, the same round as like an M4 or, or equivalent to a civilian AR. Uh, and I had we were on a three-day operation in a pretty – uh, intense bad guy area. And we had, we had ticks every day. And the second day there was a RPG shot at a friend. He, he had a, uh, seven, six, two machine gun, what we call Mark 48. And so we got shot at, it went about 10 feet over ahead and we had a little mini firefight dropping bombs. And then the third day we were in a pretty intense firefight where an RPG went about a foot over my head when I bent down to pick something up. So I guess for me, I, I didn't, to, here's the answer to your question. That was all the preamble to kind of give you like the conditions that I was sure, in yeah. for, for being prepared for combat. When it finally happened, 
uh, I was able to react in a productive way as opposed to maybe having fear, like having fear override anything or having indecision because I had gotten into the habit in the military of making decisions in order to like fucking make something happen. And in small unit tactics, that's, that's what they're looking for. Cause if you're indecisive and you waste time and you don't make a decision, then that's when people can be hurt. That's when you can get maneuvered on. That's when you're not reacting properly to make something happen. In other words, that could be the condition set for someone getting killed sure. or not, or not saving someone. Basically like when I was in combat initially, I was around people that, uh, were guiding me, uh, that team, that current team sergeant and that former team sergeant kind of guided everything forward. And so I got to be a part of like a, uh, appropriate battle drill responses. Cause uh, I've been exposed to a lot of with these battle drills in the military from infantry tactics or things that you train all the time. So you have a, a, it's a collective action rapidly executed without a deliberate decision-making process. So that's like the kind of the book answer of what a battle drill is. And so I was implementing those things on a regular basis in training. And so when it happened in combat, it was kind of natural to do it. And I also on a separate kind of topic was an expert in compartmentalizing emotions. So the fear suppression or the fear ignoring was something I was very good at when you're sta- I went to free fall had already done that by the time I was in groups. So like I liked standing on the ramp and looking down 13,000 feet up sick in order bastard. to suppress my fear. So <laughs> what'd you say? I said you sick bastard. Um, <laughs> but you know, you're, you're touching on where I kind of wanted to ask you next because you're a self-proclaimed critical thinker uh, and you talk about that fear and everything else. Something that we touch on a lot here is, once you pull that trigger in combat, nothing is ever the same again. And, and that's not to say that anybody is weak or anything like that. It's just different because that round doesn't come back. And the effects of that round, you know, change the world literally to a certain, if you believe in the cosmos of the universe, so to speak, right? If that's, if that's where your head is, that everything is in order and everything has an order in the universe. Do you, did you ever in those moments or even after the fact, take a moment to think about the effect that you had in combat? You mean from a moral and ethical standpoint yeah. or like resulting in death sure. of, of an enemy? Yes. So here's that. That's an interesting question. Here's, here's something that might kind of f- build the framework from my mindset. I read a book. I think it was horse soldiers uh, about the triple nickel, the, the fifth group team that went in and helped the Northern Alliance overthrow the Taliban. There was an individual on that team that when he came back from his deployment with no fanfare, he got back in the middle of the night. It was raining. His wife picked him up. He was alone in a parking lot. He got in the car. And uh, if my memory recalls correctly, he was crying and his wife was asking what was wrong. And he said, it's just all the killing. And when I read that, I was like, man, I don't I wonder if that'll be how I react. And that if you if you have. My my like morals and ethics regarding religion and stuff may have been a little different than that guy's. Uh, but when I was going into the fight against ISIS, I had been in I, – I speak Arabic or maybe not so well now, but I studied Arabic in the Q course. I had an instructor that was from Iraq, and she had been – her and her family and friends had been the victim of countless bombs, whether it was from uh, the insurgency or ISIS. And so I, I kind of just had years of just – wanting to fight ISIS from a moral and ethical standpoint and not having an issue, uh, eliminating an enemy in that, in that, in that, in those circumstances. So I guess the answer is no, it doesn't bother me. I, 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 there, and let me give you a, a preface. There are many guys that have been a lot more combat than me, a lot more deployed time. 
uh, treated a lot more casualties. I'm pretty sure you've been on probably a lot more uh, like convoys than I have, for example. And so I don't think I'm cool just because I had a taste of combat and I was in a lot of it for um, the period that I was deployed. And I don't think I'm cool. And there are guys who have smoked a lot more bad guys than I have. I've only personally shot and killed one, and but we've killed many, many, many with airstrikes. Uh, and uh, so I don't have a moral and ethical dilemma as a result of that. Uh, there's a book called On Killing, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Like I don't have any of the the questioning of what I did in combat for those purposes because I think I had already framed it that our fight was morally and ethically sound and that we were doing it for the people. Sure. And, and, and I'm with you. Like, I, I understand it. I, I, mean, I, I tell this story often on the podcast just because we, we've talked about this topic a lot. You know, I mean, I can remember the first time I, I fired my weapon, you know, in combat. And there right. was a split second as I'm looking down the barrel of my rifle and at the end of the iron sight and I have the target acquired. And it was right as I got ready to pull, I paused for a split second. I just had that thought. You can't, you can't take the bull back, right? And, and then it goes away. It was fleeting. It, it might have happened literally in less than a half a second. And you pull the trigger, and you go about your business. And it, for, for some reason for me, that thought always stayed with me. Uh, and that's why I, I say routinely, it doesn't matter what happens to you in combat. The person you were before that dies, and you, there is a new person coming. You'll never be that same person again. Because the experience alters you at your core, to this stand, to, from the point of, you know, the nature of war only serves itself, right? Like, you know, let's get existential here for a second. I mean, sure. that's, that, that's what it is. So uh, to that end, is all the killing worth it? Well, different people and reasonable minds can choose to disagree. But in that moment, you know, it's one person killing another person. And it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. I I would agree with you that you're, you're a changed person because – but when you step back and you like anything that you just said or that I just said, so the one that sticks out to me, the the moment it, as far as like, it wasn't the first time I had fired my weapon in combat, but the RPG went about 10 feet over our head. I was, I'm going to call this friend uh wild boy. Cause his nickname has wild in it. Then we call him and he's just silly. Uh, but we were sitting on there, we were talking, we were on a little hilltop pulling security. And then it was, you know, a guy in black pajamas stepped out. The RPG went over our head and he was like, Oh shit. And, uh, I initially just did like a, probably a 50 round burst with my saw from the kneeling, holding it by the truck, the, the bipod. Cause I had it on the, the ground as I was pulling security. And, I didn't have the moment of like, th this is never going to be the same, but I would agree with you because when you, when you step back and you, if, if you're a normal person, so I'm friends with a guy named Sturgill Simpson, he's a musician, right? And I'll tell him a story every now and then of th something that might've happened to me in combat. And then we'll be sitting there and he'll go, man, that's fucking insane <laughs> because it is because it is because the, these are extreme aspects of the human experience. Like right. when you are firing, like, if I, if someone was 10 meters in front of me and I shot them with a saw with a 50 round burst, like their body would be mutilated. Like it's a, it's a thing spewing, spewing projectiles that will destroy someone's body if it hits them. And they tried to shoot something at me that explodes. And if it hit me, I would, I would not be recognizable as a human. So like, yeah, that's fucking crazy. And yeah, uh, to, to your point, like you're not the same when that happens. And so you know, maybe this is a later portion of the conversation, but I have a lot of friends that have been in a lot of combat, like five years of it from the regular army. And they're, 
you know, they're not, they've been through a lot, like emotionally since then, like it fucked them up and they're still messed up. And I kind of think of some of them as lost souls of like what they're just kind of like trying to find their way. And I, you know, a big debate of whether or not we do enough to take care of our guys, but, but yeah, it changes you and, uh, it, it can give you perspective uh, but it can also swallow you whole. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Depending, depending on the experience that you have. I was fortunate that when I got, when I got blown up, I didn't watch any of my best. One of my good friends, my best friends got blown up with me. He didn't lose any limbs though. And I didn't see him, but like my friends saw me dying. I, I never, I I've lost someone as a, as a medic. I've lost uh, a patient that I couldn't save but one of my best friends didn't die in front of me. Mm-hmm. And if that had happened, that would be way different than just what I, all the loss that I currently have. Can you share that story about the guy you lost that you couldn't save? Because I'm <clears> sure <throat> of all the guys you did save, you know, it's the ones that you don't save that stick with you more. Sure. And, and I don't, I don't, there wasn't anything we could do in this particular scenario. And, uh, we were exfiling from a mission. We, before this event happened, we were calling it the Lord of the Rings mission because we, I think in two days I walked like 25 miles in kit with my aid bag, just trying to go and clear an ISIS village. And, uh, we stayed the night we did, we did up, there are patrol bases in real life. If you're, if you're a dude and doing infantry training somewhere right now, or you're doing ranger school and you're, you think patrol bases are really dumb. Like I've had patrol bases on the ground uh, overlooking ISIS villages on ridgelines and I've had a lot of vehicle patrol bases. So they're a real thing, but, uh, we were, it was a two day operation. We had no contact. Uh, so as a guy that likes contact or at that point in my life, it was really cool until it wasn't when I got blown up, but, but you really wanted contact because you wanted to find and fix and destroy the enemy. But, uh, we were exfilling. uh, we cut the admission early on a, we were going to stay out three days. We, we were com- we we're going to exfil on the second day and we were driving Matt V's and, uh, have you been in a Matt V you've been in vehicles similar to it, but they're kind of newer. No, I haven't. Yeah. Point. So they're kind of like the old RGs. It's essentially for everyone else. It's like a giant truck, uh, talking like 15 feet high. And there's this thing called a crow system on it, which, uh, is essentially a video game robot turret that someone's sitting inside and has like a, uh, a video game controller with a screen and they can, they can zoom in and shoot a 50 cal or a mark mark 19. Or there's an open turret, and uh, this particular uh, vehicle had an open turret on it. And I was uh, riding in the back of one, and about 100 meters in front, you have certain spacing when you're on convoys that you're familiar with. So we're probably 100, 150 meters behind that vehicle in front of us. But the terrain was very uh, mountainous, and the ground just gave away. And the Mat V rolled down a ravine, probably 40 feet, or excuse me, 40 meters down. Oh, damn. Pretty steep angle. And the armor of the Mat V uh, essentially cut this soldier in half, oh. uh, almost. And uh, as it rolled over, and there were there were a total of eight people in this vehicle, and nobody else had a serious injury. I took them all. I medevaced them all for TBI and and C spine injuries. And I don't know how, but nobody else was hurt. But when I jumped out of the back of mine, I, uh, someone on a razor drove me up to the casualty. And I had the other Delta and I had a 68 whiskey with me. And when I got to him, I immediately checked pulse. He was on his back, but the, the color and disposition of how he looked, I didn't really expect him to 
uh, be alive. He had an evisceration, which is the intestines or bowel that were down to his knees. He had an open femur fracture, which means the bone is protruding from the skin. And uh, he didn't, he, he, he looked very bad off. And I, I took pulses. I may have had a, like an agonal pulse in his carotid. And so I immediately had someone do CPR. I cracked him and double needle deed him. Double needle, a needle decompression is something you do for a tension pneumothorax or like what layman's terms is a sucking chest wound. And when you have someone that uh, is not doing so well from a, uh, if you don't think that they're going to survive perspective, because I can't pronounce someone dead as an 18 Delta, then you do a double needle D just in case there's a tension pneumo that's inhibiting their blood vessels. The pressure can build up and, and uh, kind of occlude the aorta, the aortic arch or the heart itself, or the fact that, uh, so you just double needle DM because you, if you, if you're, it's a last ditch effort. So double needle DM, correct them. Uh, someone was doing CPR. We were bagging him once we had the, uh, the crike in, I had the 68 whiskey, uh, dress his open femur fracture and reduce his evisceration. And the issue with that is that we're on a slope and there are many people who are thrown out of that vehicle. And so there's essentially some chaos and luckily we weren't in contact. Otherwise yeah. that would have been Dude, much Lord. more complicated, <laughs> but the threat of contact was there. So, you know, other elements of our, of our overall ground force were, you know, pulling security and, you know, getting close air support to observe the area and react in case uh, we did take contact. And from my memory and other people can confirm or deny it, I kind of had to uh, collectively get everyone to have a focus goal of this medical scenario uh, because some people were having there were emotional reactions, including the driver of the vehicle who probably it, it wasn't his fault at all. And we were sure to tell him that in the months following, but he was very upset at the time. So there were many people that were upset. So directing people in a worst case scenario is basically what I'd tried to prepare my entire life for. And, uh, we had to get six people just to carry the litter. It's a town litter, like a hard litter up the slope, just because of how loose it was like loose rock and sand. And then we put them on a razor and I, uh, I ran behind the razor while holding his head still. He had crepitus in his C-spine, meaning that it was likely fractured. So I held his head still as we ran 300 meters to an LZ while I had someone else in the, in the razor do C continue CPR. We'd also pushed Epi. Um, so the other Delta prepared and, and pushed Epi's Epi, epinephrine is slow IV push. So actually you slam it in this kind of scenario, but epinephrine, will start the heart in a code, uh, which is when the heart stops in the hospital, they run what is called a code. So we're essentially doing all the, all these emergency medicine things in the field and continued that treatment until the bird got there and I put him on the bird. And, uh, so that, that's, a I guess that's a story about, uh, just one little thing that has happened in all the com the history of combat ever, but in the history of these last almost 20 years, it's just one little story of uh, one person losing their life on a combat operation and uh, other people trying to do what they can to save them and to show everyone that they did everything they could to try and save that person. And uh, so that was definitely a contributing factor in, in my emotions in the rest of the deployment and the following year.
for sure. I mean, hearing you tell it, my heart's racing just listening to it. I, I mean, the intensity of the whole thing is, is uh, you know, sometimes reliving it is unreal. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like I was there sitting next to you, listening to you to go through that whole thing. And I'm sure it, it lasted a lot longer than the three or four minutes you took to explain that. But, uh, and, and he was a, he was a good dude. And I remember talking to him. I, I, I like to joke around. I mean, I've joked around in pretty serious scenarios. I didn't joke around during that one, but, uh, I've been pinned down by machine gun fire for five minutes and kind of been like, this fucking sucks, dude. Like this, just, just kind of, just <laughs> you're like to, me in that sense. I, you need, you need to cut the tension with some sort of humor. Yeah. And, uh, I've joked around with casualty when I'm treating him when I know he's going to live. But, um, I remember he was, uh, he was pulling security. He was in charge of security in the patrol base. And I remember talking to him and, and dicking around with him. So it's just, it just, it, it sucks when it just sucks when you lose a life and you care about them. And, and so that the value in hearing this story for anyone listening would be just to understand some of the stuff that happens on a combat deployment and that stuff happens in training, unfortunately too, quite a lot. Uh, and, and then also what would be valuable for people to understand that hear that story is the effect that it might have on people and the effect that you're not hearing about right now is the effect that it had on his family or his friends. Right. And, uh, that I understand that from a different perspective as a casualty, but you know, how his family, whether it's his parents or a wife or kids or anything like the effect that it would have on them going forward is significant. And so the point that I always make is that, and the reason why I want to share stories like this or why I would want to put this information out is that I would want anyone making the decision, anybody at all, but like the people that vote or the people that make decisions, the people that vote for politicians or the politicians that make decisions to conduct any type of wartime uh, operation or to be involved in a war. I'm not saying that war is uh, something that we should always avoid or that we shouldn't be in these wars. I'm not making any of those points because I definitely don't represent the DOD at all. But uh, I would want them to consider the cost. That's all. I would want people to understand the cost, and you can't understand it if you don't know. So when you hear a story which we haven't even talked about my personal story, but when you hear a story about someone losing their life and the effect that it might have on everyone that was involved or the effect on their family, I would just want people to understand that cost because that matters. Well, let's get to your story because that's, that's next. Um, you know, you finished that first deployment um, and your second deployment is how much further down the road after you get back? 11 months after I got back from the first one. Okay. And uh, Are you heading yeah. back to the same part of Afghanistan? I was in the same district in the same province. Okay. So assuming the same mission set for the most part? Right. Just at a different different outpost, uh, probably within 10 to 20 kilometers of the other location where I was conducting combat. And you arrived there when? Month and year? Uh, February of 19. Okay. So it is only a couple of weeks until March 5th, 2019 when... Uh, when you get injured, take me through that morning. Is it a normal day? Is it a normal, you know, mission set for you on that day? What are the circumstances? Yeah. So I, uh, when you, when you do a lot of the, when you conduct operations on a regular basis and they're the same types of operations, especially in the same type of area, 
oftentimes with the same partner force I had on the first deployment, like I would recognize guys and talk to them because I learned and spoke enough Pashto to uh, at least entertain the partner force. You you have a certain level of confidence that uh, in doing it again, because we had done a lot of operations like that on the first deployment and I was, and these are interesting operations. These are a lot of daytime ones too, like SF, we do a lot of nighttime raids in general, but these are like daytime clearance type operations. So it's very, very different than what a lot of guys do nowadays. Uh, but yeah, I would always wake up, uh, evacuate my bowels and uh, put the right clothes on. And uh, all the preparation was done before that day, you know, with our gear. That's just part of being a soldier, being a, mm-hmm. a, a Green Berets. <clears throat> we would check all those things uh the day or two before all the weapons would have already been cleaned, test fired and everything. They would have been loaded. The kit would have been ready for combat. It would have, I would have everyone weigh their stuff so that they would understand how much they're carrying. If one guy had more than another, then I would cross load effectively. So cross loading, all that stuff was already done. And as an assault leader, uh, that was something that I paid a lot of attention to making sure everyone had medical cross load. One of the major things that we had uh, for this op- for this deployment, the second one was I would carry blood on the on uh, the mission. Uh, we had these cooling these little coolers where you could carry two units of blood with a warmer. So I'd usually have someone carry that, and everybody would have a uh, a blood transfusion kit where I could take out of guy A and put it into guy B. And I say guy because there are no females on this particular operation. But uh, so yeah, uh, I'd already had snacks in my kit uh those are that's the important part you have like good you know to give you an idea how much uh weight this would be on my last operation on my first deployment i weighed close to i weighed 297 with all my shit on so i weighed around i was about 210 pounds and so i had about 90 pounds of crap on me that's like your kit which is the body armor all the ammo uh grenades of various types whether they're anti-structural smoke or frag uh or uh not so much in the type of AO we were in, but you could also have flashbangs. Uh, so full basic load for your rifle. A lot of guys might carry a, uh, sometimes you might carry a sidearm. It's just kind of the preference of the guy. Sometimes that sidearm would have been a 320, which shoots a 40 mic mic grenade. Uh, could be smoke, could be explosive, HEDP, et cetera. And, uh, and then I would always have my aid bag or some, some element or some uh, medical capability because I'm a medic. And so I weighed uh, almost 300 pounds on that first deployment. And then on this particular operation we were conducting when I got hurt, we were going to uh, remain overnight, which we say RON. We were going to do a RON in this valley and uh, kind of instigate for more combat so we could find out where the bad guys were and without saying more. We were just we were clearing an area and also looking to uh, find, fix, kill the enemy. And uh, so we had rucks is my point. And uh, – so when you have a you have to sleep at night and you have to have food for multi-day operation it, and you have uh we would cross load 762 link uh so in other words you got a heavy ruck on uh, in addition to your kit and uh so all that stuff was prepared it was a normal morning we took a team picture there's a photo there's pictures of me of that morning the last pictures of me with legs and uh so that's that's kind of how that morning went i think around 7 we rolled out and uh, you know as the sun's coming up we step off with our partner force. It was a two-team operation, and uh, that's kind of the the setting for the day. All right. So, by the way, a snack of choice, just out of curiosity. 
well, you're limited on what you can get in country and what the supply provides you unless you brought a bunch of stuff on your own. But we had these honey stinger bars that uh, they'd have like 10 grams of protein and like, you know, almost 30 grams of carbs. But so, I, but they, when you're tired and you, I think you know what I'm talking about. Like when you're in an operation, whether it's hot or it's cold or you're just miserable in the elements, sometimes when you have a certain type of snack, it's like, the greatest thing in the world. You get reduced <laughs> to like caveman mentality, you know, like you've been, I'm sure you've been cold and wet in the woods or something in training. And when you put dry clothes on, it's just like, that is the epitome of happiness to you. So sometimes snacks can do that and having the right amount of uh, electrolyte in your electrolyte powder in your water bottle or something. So I had a bunch of stinger, uh, stinger bars and you can see it in my kit on the last picture of me. There's a little orange thing sticking up and, that was my snacks. All right, so you guys have the scene set, and you're ready to roll out the door. Take me through the sequence of events. So generally speaking, with this operation, we're you know we're doing what dudes do, and uh, we're so we're maneuvering through a kind of a mountainous environment with uh, sparsely populated buildings through a valley, in order to get to where our LOA was for the the day, the the limit of advance. And so generally speaking, uh, the team sergeant is the tactical commander on the ground as far as him making decisions of where the ground forces are going to move. And you have a captain who is the ground force commander. He's the team leader of the ODA. And so his credentials are necessary to call in close air support when it fits in with the rules of engagement, the ROE. And the, the team sergeant essentially is the assault leader from an overall perspective. And we would split our assault element into two cells and then those two cells would have two teams and so on this particular operation i was a team leader uh and i was sort sort of like helping out and maybe maybe sort of mentoring a cell leader uh because i usually function as a cell leader and so i was on a i was i was controlling the smallest component which would be roughly partner force it could be anywhere from 10 to 20 guys with a few americans and uh so those cells are being coordinated by that zulu that team sergeant and we are uh essentially like an organism that we have uh bottom-up communication when necessary and top-down communication uh to tell us what to do and so we're that's that's essentially like the bread and butter of what i like to do when you're making decisions on how you're going to uh approach a piece of ge geography and do it in a with a tactical advantage uh, and usually our two teams in a cell would mutually support each other, which is just sound, uh, infantry tactics. And then the two cells could support each other. And then if relevant, there'd be a support by fire that could support, uh, there's a certain doctrine that they could see a certain portion of the objective and influence a certain portion of the objective. But we would typically have a support by fire. In this case, we had another ODA on the opposite side of the Valley doing their own thing too. So, we uh, we had uh, security pretty locked down, especially with the air support covering the ridge lines, and so we're maneuvering uh, forward. So usually we have uh, within the cell one team would be moving while the other is stationary to provide the local support by fire. So we're always we would always brief these things as such because that's how we conducted our operations and that's how I learned to do it uh, to always have uh, eyes on where the other team is moving. So that, that that support is there. So in case something does pop off, because I've been in near ambush, far ambushes, then you can uh, have a reaction to it instead of being caught moving uh, in an area. 
So you have different levels of alertness depending on how your patrol is going of where the contact is possible or whether it's likely, but we're kind of approaching it like it could happen at any moment. And uh, there are a lot of IEDs uh, in this particular valley. Uh, maybe some suggestion that as the ISIS fight drew down in Iraq and Syria that those TTPs, those uh, essentially those standard operating procedures uh, that they might use against uh Western or, con or other conventional forces may have made their way to Afghanistan. So there were there were a lot of IEDs, including uh, down in terrain in the in the wadis. So uh, in this type of environment, if you take a deliberate path, like a walking path, then that would be an, a high avenue of approach. So from a defense perspective, you would expect there to be IEDs there, and uh, you would generally try to not take the route that you would get funneled into a certain terrain so that you could be ambushed quite easily. So uh, there were so many IEDs in the terrain that we decided to deliberately move on a path, uh, which I would support that decision now in retrospect and I supported at the time. And we were using an EOD element to uh, whether we marked and bypassed IEDs or we identify them and blow them in place, which is we use the acronym BIP. And uh, so we were clearing the buildings because you can't like move past a building if especially if it's above you and just continue on your operation you have to clear those buildings because if for some reason there are guys in there and then your element is now ahead of that position then anybody in that building can just decimate your force so whenever i've been in firefights where there are many clear uncleared buildings around me so instead of focusing on the firefight i would take a certain force and clear the area around that uh, us so in this case, we are doing that as we move forward. I'm going to pause there in case you have any questions or no. Uh, I mean, I, I think you've, no. I, you've set the scene quite well. I, I I understand it. I hope the audience does. Again, uh, people who are military who have been in combat have the benefit of sort of drawing this mental picture. But um, I, I think you've set it up quite well. Yeah, there's uh, it was a nice day. I'd say probably in the 50s, maybe maybe to the 60s, sunny. Uh, a good day for walking around in the mountains. I would drop my ruck and recon things with elements. Or I'd drop my ruck and kind of clear buildings on on high ground because I'd always drop the ruck because it's probably close to 100 pounds or so and pull my uh, aid bag out, and which was, was a butt pack on this one. And uh, so eventually we're moving on this path, and I'm really bored because I – you, you have this uh, idea of momentum on an operation and uh, the momentum starts pushing forward. And when the momentum gets slowed down due to essentially logistics or administrative control, then things can get things can get bogged down and it can you lose your initiative against the enemy. So speed, surprise and violence of actions are common terms that you hear in tactics, mm -hmm. especially regarding raids or ambushes. And so. When you're on ground and you're moving through a mountainous terrain, you don't really have speed and you don't have surprise. So you just have to have violence of action. But there is an element of initiative that on an enemy that the more time they have to set in their defenses, which they usually would have layered defenses in defensive fighting positions, which we call DFPs, they can they can prepare very quickly and easily to defend an area uh, if it's valuable to them. And so if you're moving and you get bogged down that like one element stops moving and then that other element doesn't move right away or they're not ready to move. And then they're taking a long time to get to wherever they need to go. So you, you can't move until they're done moving. Those types of things can bog things down. And as a guy who likes to be very efficient and methodical, that can get 
uh, frustrating or boring. Uh, and so the, we were, we, we did not get complacent when this happened, but sometimes that's just how it is. Like if you have Intel or snipers see something or the air support sees something and they're prosecuting a target, we would usually, uh, stop moving so that the ground force commander would know where all the friendlies are. So things like that can just bog the movement down. And when you're a dude on the ground, my team sergeant would often remind me like, you know, don't worry about this. Like we have to do this. This is the smart, you know, this is the good decision. Not that I was being rash, but I'll just be bored and be like, come on, I just want to move. And you're like, yes, but we can't right now. So we had a good temperament on the team of like checks and balances, what I'm saying from an attitude perspective. Uh, so that was kind of, we were, we were moving and it was, it sucked because we were kind of, uh, stretched out a long way because of the terrain was so steep. Uh, and then we moved up and there was going to be uh, a compound that I was planning an assault with, with a uh, team leader and the cell leader that I was associated with. And people had walked around a particular area on the ground many times, including my teammates. And I had my arms out. I was wearing my ruck, planning the assault and adjusted my ruck and took a step with my left leg and everything exploded. Uh, so my it's it's interesting though because my memory repackages this event very differently than how it happened but that's that's how it happened chronologically uh what my what i thought was happening and what did happen are two different things i, I it, the 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 blast seemed to be angled in such a way that uh it almost like swept my legs out from under me it felt like uh, almost like if you were going to have a hockey stick, someone kind of like hook your leg and kind of mm -hmm. yank it out from under you. So the nature of the blast and I, I ended up on my back and had an extreme initial freak out and ex full of excruciating pain where I saw that team sergeant who was also one of my best friends and uh, very close with, uh, just on an, a, a friendship and emotional level, but also on a professional level. I uh, saw him as a mentor and everything. So he watched it happen and I had my hands outstretched to him, uh, arms extended. And I just, I yelled help 10 times, roughly like help, help, just complete utter panic and sheer excruciating pain. And then once they got to me and they started working on me, then they told me I just went calm and I became quiet. And I remember asking, was that an RPG? And they were like, no, it was an IED. Like I had thought that there were like someone crept over the ridge line. There was like a little piece we called a spur in a, like for terrain. It's just like a piece of high ground that kind of slopes down like a ridge line down to where you're at. So I thought someone had climbed up that spur and just kind of shot an RPG and got a, a, a lucky near ambush type shot. But it was an IED and uh, the CCT, which is the combat controller from the Air Force, whose job it is to control all the close air support in the air. He told me after the fact that he was several, he was a couple hundred meters back roughly. And he heard the blast and it was like one, 1,000, two, 1,000, like PKM, AK-47, like everything opening up on uh, both of the, the ODAs that were on the ground. So uh, what ended up happening is it blew my left leg off immediately. And then my right leg was blasted mostly to the bone uh, through the calf region. My foot was still there. And then... Uh, from my subjective experience, there was searing hot pain in my crotch too. So I just kind of expected a lot of damage to my testicles in retrospect. Those are gone. Those got blown off. And, uh, and let me, let me, let me back up for two separate reasons. The first okay. is 
the first is preparation for combat. And so my job is to train not only my guys, but anybody that would be attached to us as well as the partner force in trauma medicine for point of injury medicine. And we have certain types of training in, in the special forces regiment that is required prior to deployment. And so those of us that are in the unit know what I'm referring to, but there's certain types of medical training that is, uh, is extremely valuable and necessary. And, uh, we'll just look at it in number of days. Uh, we were scheduled to have two days of it and I, uh, pushed that and extended that to a three day. And I would rather it be a four day period or an entire week of training, uh, to run full on scenarios of not only point of injury training on a patient, but also how the team conducts their response to that patient calling in a medevac movement to movement to a landing zone and then medevac procedures and uh, to include how they're conducting their security with that patient movement, whether it's in vehicles or on the ground. And so we had done a lot of that and I had, uh, we, I would always incorporate medical training into everything we did, whether it was flight range or small unit tactics with no, you know, with dry weapons or in other words, no real ammo in them, uh, blank or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So we would always do medical stuff, including patient movement, uh, we would, uh, drill mask cow. Sometimes we would just be in plain clothes at, uh, at where our team room was and just conduct a mask cow. So the guys would have to like kind of do fake point of injury training, point of injury training and bring them to, uh, a, a casualty collection point for a mask cow, which is a mass casualty situation, uh, which is what this was. So the reason I wanted to point that out is because the guys that responded to me, there were three guys. Uh, all of them were on the first deployment and all of them, ha I had trained them if I had to guess and they can, they would be able to confirm or deny it. I trained them in a total of at least like 30 sessions of medical training overall, um, to include the very special pre-deployment type training. We did that a couple times. Uh, and so without that training and without their knowledge of it, and one of them who was a Charlie, the engineer guy had been to a wilderness survival course that is run at, uh, Fort Bragg to give a non-medical guy pretty extensive medical training. Those guys were the ones who responded to me. And so they put tourniquets on me and they had done, they had, they had done that drill and they had done this type of drill many, many times. And that along with some other things are why I'm alive. And they did a good job. I was helping to tell them what to do as the injury, as I was basically laying there dying, but had those guys, uh, not had that level of training or someone hadn't really uh, drilled it into them, then maybe that scenario would have been different. Well, so to a certain extent you saved your own life from that standpoint. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, but I mean, I'm pretty confident that those guys were prepared to handle whatever they could medically. And I think in my particular scenario that it was very, I was riding the cusp of not, not going to make it, the entire time and because of those guys and what they did and, and the training that we did. So yeah, I, I ultimately played a part in saving my own life and medics need to remember that because sometimes there are people who are resistant to medical training. I've never really experienced that, but that's the old adage that like, uh, don't worry about that. But like for you, uh, in your military career, how many times in training have you been in full kit laying down on the ground behind a barrier like on a live range and put tourniquets on all four of your limbs. Well, not all four, but once in that simulated environment. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, like one at a time, not like all four of your limbs. That'd be yeah. fucking <laughs> insane. But, but, I'm, 
but good. That's a good thing that you've actually done that. A lot of I've met people that haven't done that and that have been to combat. So I would want dudes to have done this a variety of times in training so that when my ass is the one that's blown up, it's not the first time they're ever doing some shit. Right. Exactly. Um, you, you kind of mentioned something that uh, anecdotally has been something that we have laughed about on this podcast over and over again. And we've talked to dozens of guys who have been blown up. And the first thing, inevitably, every guy who asks who gets blown up is, is my junk okay? Um, and, you know, I, I tread lightly here because we always usually laugh about it. But in your case, uh, it wasn't. You said you felt a searing hot pain. Um, did you think that was just some sort of like psychosomatic, like it wasn't, there was nothing really wrong. Did your guys say anything to you? Did they notice anything about the fact that you were bleeding from, you know, that area? No, I knew something was wrong. Um, the, 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 a lot of people have been in pain and I, and you, people can be wounded or they can just have experienced different types of pain whether it's a bone fractures or things in their back, muscle pulls, does the level of pain that I experience in during this time and that I would continue experiencing for a very long time and that I still experience every now and then is uh, something that is not really describable. Uh, it's every nerve sensation associated with pain. All ha- you have, you can have nerve pain that's electric, shocking, burning, sizzling, uh, searing all these are very exquisitely different types of pain and all of those are happening at once at a level that, uh, was crippling to the point where I could not talk correctly. Uh, so I would, you know, I, I, I also would laugh about <clears throat> make guys wanting to make sure their junk is okay. Cause like, I mean, it's like a relief thing if it is. Yeah, well, like, I mean, most and, guys and just feel to, like everything else is negotiable at that point, right? Like, yeah. I'm willing to lose but, my legs, but, you know, we're in a whole different discussion if if that part of me isn't okay. Yeah, and so and I'm grateful. Uh, let me... Go ahead, go I, ahead. This is maybe like too much information for some no, listeners. No, no, no. no it's my, not. My, my, uh, my penis is intact, and it functions both for urinary and, and sexual okay. purposes. I don't have my testicles, so I, I don't have... Uh, testosterone endogenously, meaning my body makes it, and I don't have testosterone testicles for reproductive purposes. So there are pieces of uh, different samples that were taken that may have enough reproductive material for me to have children, but that's up in the air until I'm in danger of needing to use those things. Wow. Like I'm not in danger of having kids, you know, so like I don't need to worry about it yet, but it's something that uh, is still up in the air of whether or not it's possible. So... <clears throat> So it's, a, I guess what I'm saying is like, I knew that I knew I was fucked up. Uh, I was, I, I was so, I w- it was a circumstance that I would not have been able to put tourniquets on myself. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like we trained for the guy to do self aid all the time. And then buddy aid will be there if necessary, if relevant. Cause you normally have a buddy nearby. This was a situation that I would not have been able to put tourniquets on myself. You know, <sighs> And I'm just wondering the pure physics of the actual injury. Was it a piece of shrapnel that somehow, I mean, you're a big guy. Your legs are freaking tree trunks. I've seen pictures of you. Like, I, I would just think alone that any piece of shrapnel, because your legs above the knee aren't tore up, were they? I mean, how did, it, did do you know how it actually, you know, your testicles got injured? Yeah. Um, so just from looking at my scars, 
someone would be able to tell this. And then also I've seen images, I've seen pictures of when I arrived at the Roll 2, which is, you see, you get medevaced and you get taken to your initial place where you get surgery. And that is what I'm referring to as a Roll 2. So I've seen pictures that occurred like within the hour of me getting hurt uh, of the injuries. And so that's pretty intense. <clears throat> uh, and then I never looked at my legs at the time, but so the nature, see with blast, you have different types of, uh, things that can hurt you with a blast. You have the actual explosive, uh, material that it's, so that will detonate and that sometimes with IEDs, there are things inside the, in the actual device that will explode out so they can fill it with anything like uh, glass, um, pieces of metal. I'm not quite sure if that stuff was in this one. Uh, and then also it was buried and it had snowed and melted multiple times. So there was no ground sign awareness of this area, but it at least pushes the dirt and the mud or the dirt, or the rocks and everything. So like everything that is on top of that explosive material then becomes a projectile. So, so going back, you have the actual blast itself. So there's damage from just the explosive, the explosion itself. So that it was represented by burns down to my bone. So I had blackened skin in a lot of my legs. Uh, the, the foot had been blown off. And then just as like a side note that we had snipers that were, I don't know, they could have been like 30 to 50 meters away on that, uh, spur oh, kind of higher up on the spur that I talked about. And mm -hmm. apparently they looked down and the tongue of my boot was next to them after the blast had occurred. So like it, it was enough that it blew the foot that had been blown off. Like that tongue of my boot flew at least 30 to 50 meters and landed next to them. Jesus. So the, so my foot, so the blast is what blew my foot off. And then all that other stuff gets pushed into you, uh, that the dirt or the, or the actual shrap. So you have spalling, which is part of the, uh, bomb itself. And then shrapnel is technically everything that's pushed from the blast. So we just usually colloquially just refer to all that stuff as, as shrapnel. So, uh, yeah, so shrapnel went into, they went through my testicles. Uh, some of it went into the actual, uh, penis, the base of it and the tip of it. Like I have, I have shrapnel on the tip of my dick right now. Uh, some of it slightly severed my urethra. Um, and some of that went into some of the, uh, muscles that would, like if you get your gooch or your taint in, in medicine, we call that the the perineum. Which I like the gooch or the more, taint better. Yeah, but in that like that gooch area, like some some of that shrapnel went in and hit some of the muscles uh, there also. In in the so it didn't have any. I actually had a kind of like a let's say a centimeter or two a gouge out of my right butt cheek also. So and then there was a bunch of damage to my inner thigh. So the, it, I was pretty much on top of it the pressure plate and the the charge were near each other. And so I took the brunt of it and my weapon was slung in front of me. I had my arm, my hands weren't on the weapon, which is rare because my right hand is usually on the weapon to control it and to be able to pull it up immediately. So I usually gesture with my left hand, but I was adjusting my ruck with both arms. And, uh, so the, the rifle's blown apart. Uh, all the shit was blown out of the front of my kit, including the snacks. Uh, the the rifle literally the barrel was bent the buttstock was blown off like the the actual upper receiver was damaged so like everything was blown apart and somehow i didn't lose any fingers i had i added some damage to my wrists and my hands as far as skin damage but i didn't lose any fingers which is very common in guys that step on 
that are dismounted and step on IEDs. Yeah. And then I didn't catch anything in my face either. So I was like literally right on it and it just went up into my groin. When did you find out the extent of your injuries? Probably not until the following day. So that that would make more sense within the, the, the timeline, I guess. From my perspective, I never looked at them. I just knew that it was bad. So I kind of mentioned how my memory repackaged everything differently. So that might be a good time to, mm-hmm. to just tell you it. what. To, <clears throat> so I'd, I'd uh, dropped my ruck and went up and had probably climbed almost like a 50-meter hillside to clear a handful of buildings with some partner force. And then I'd come back down. And then we were waiting to continue moving forward. And uh, when I, I don't remember like stepping on it. What happened first was that my vision had a complete white veil over it, like very cloudy, um, like I couldn't see very well. And I had kind of a third party consciousness, third third person perspective, like commentary, like from my mind about what was going on. And I remember thinking like, what what is this? And then... I don't know how much time, but then I was like, oh, I guess this is my existence now. Just whatever this is. And then I heard like a machine gun, do, 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 do. It was a 240, uh, which was roughly like 8 to 10 meters away maybe. Uh, I didn't know at the time, but so I heard this noise. I was like, oh, something's happening. And then my body was being jostled and I could hear people talking about me. And I was like, oh, something's happened to me. And then... I don't know if it coincided with my heartbeat or just noises, but if you if you have like the realm of your of your perspective and your vision, what you can see was like first person. Every there was like a and it would it was it was decreasing, and it was like decreasing in steps. So it was stepping down to the bottom left of my vision, and I probably only had like a a quarter of what I could see normally was in the bottom left of my vision. Everything else was black, and. I was starting to be able to see a little bit through this white veil of like kind of seeing uh, the mountain above me or, and and people moving around above me. And then all of a sudden it, got, it, it, it almost like made that noise and then my hand was stuck out. I adjusted my ruck and then boom, I stepped on it and then I was on my back. So I don't I, – maybe I lost consciousness. I don't – I'd always like perceive that I didn't. Uh and then the the sequence of events are that the guys put tourniquets on me, and then I was trying to I was trying to tell them what to do because in my head I was like, if I'm like I'm so messed up that if I'm going to survive this, and we need a good clinic. That's kind of what we call like a trauma patient assessment in my job. You run a clinic on a patient, and and you can you can do good clinics and you can do bad clinics where you forget stuff. And so I'm like, we need to have a good clinic or I'm dead. And uh, so I told them the interpreters who had the blood. So I told them to get the blood from him. Cause I was like, I need blood. I need TXA, which is train anexamic acid, which is an antithrombolytic, which means it prevents clots from breaking down. So whenever we have any kind of like, uh, especially in the box type damage, which the box is like from the neck to the belly button and that respiratory area. If we have like any type of internal injuries or massive hemorrhaging, we want to get TXA on someone immediately and we want blood to follow it. Uh, we don't use crystalloids like normal saline or lactate ringers anymore because uh, they kind of blow clots. Uh, if you give them, if you hydrate someone too much, and it, all it's really doing is pushing their pressures up, but it's not giving them the contents of blood that they need for a uh, 
red blood cells that have oxygen attached to them, all the clotting factor, which would be B, the clotting factors, basically stuff that dude needs to be, uh, that a dude needs to stop bleeding and to give his body the substrates to continue good, uh, metabolism. And then, so those like clear fluids that you may have seen in your army training where you like someone gets an IV and it's a clear fluid like those, that's not the way forward anymore, especially in special operations medicine. Like we need to give blood because nothing is a substitute for blood and it's warmed. So hyperthermia is a huge issue with the patient. So sure. told them to get the blood. My hemostats and my, uh, my shears were blown out of my kit. So I pulled the shears out of someone's kit and I cut my shirt off and I was pointing to my right AC antecubital portion of the inside of the elbow where the big vein is. And I was like, I need a saline lock, saline lock. And so I was kind of baby talking cause the pain was so excruciating and I was so shocky from the loss of blood that I couldn't talk very well. So it's kind of instructing them on what they did or what they could do going forward. And then overall they put five tourniquets from what I've counted in the pictures, uh, three on one leg and two on another leg. Cause I did have pretty big legs. I, I was like a 210 pound guy, uh, and then, uh, the other Delta got to me finally. So one of my good friends and the ones who helped put tourniquets on me ran back and then brought that guy forward. And, uh, this is a support personnel. I told you a little bit about him before we recorded, mm -hmm. uh, he's a good friend of mine. Um, and, uh, the other Delta came up and there was a PJ also, which I referenced earlier that I always want as many medical personnel on the ground, a, because that's better for everybody. And B, because then I can assault and not and kind of like loosen up my medical responsibility because I like assaulting. But uh, the other Delta gave me, uh, I believe it was 100 migs IM of ketamine. Ketamine is an NMDA antagonist, which uh, is a dissociative, but we use it as an analgesic as well as uh, some other things for medicine. But it's a great... It's a great analgesic, meaning that it reduces pain in the sense that it doesn't have side effects that kill a patient, like hypotension or low blood uh, blow. Excuse me, low blood pressure, and it doesn't decrease the respiratory drive like a narcotic. So a narcotic would be like morphine. You give so much, you give someone too much morphine, and they can die. Uh, so I got 100 mg of ketamine, and then I got 50 IV, which is pushed through the saline lock once they got that secured, and then uh, eventually they got blood. Going into my body. Go it's ahead. Dumb medical question. Isn't ketamine like heroin? Isn't it the same thing? Nope. Uh, completely different drug. Uh, but the, are the uh, effects the same or no? Uh, other than maybe like changing perception of reality, okay. that would be the All closest right. thing. So heroin is narcotic. So it'll uh, it'll have that decrease in respiratory drive, decrease in hypo, decrease in uh, blood pressure. And uh, ketamine, actually some side effects of ketamine are increased heart rate and increased blood pressure, which those are not like bad things when you have someone that is circling the drain, as we say. Circling the drain meaning that they're getting closer to death with the, how their physiology is functioning with respect to how they're compensating to the blood loss gotcha. or whatever whatever else is going on. So ketamine is interesting, uh, very multiple multi-use, but it's like – it's been the hotness for a while in special operations medicine and it will continue being cause you can use it in, you can use it for anesthesia with surgery along with other stuff like propofol, which is, uh, like a narcotic. Uh, but yeah, so ketamine, you can, you can't overdose on it either. You can overdose on a narcotic cause it'll kill someone or like a benzodiazepine like Valium or Versed. Yep, yeah, yeah. Like those can, those can, de uh, kill someone with a high dose and there's reversal agents for narcs and flu, uh, and benzodiazepines, there's Narcan and Flumazenil, respectively. 
So like when you're, if you ever hear stories about people who are like doped up and paramedics hit them with Narcan and they come up and they're violent and they're angry. Cause like you ruined my high man, you know, like that's kind of that classic, like hitting someone with Narcan and just like revving them back to reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, ketamine does not have a reversal agent, uh, but time, uh, it'll, the body will metabolize it. So you can give someone 200 migs, 300 migs of ketamine. I mean, you can give a child a note, like that level of ketamine and they're not going to die. Uh, they might have like a pretty rock and roll psychedelic experience, which, uh, when you pair that with the set and setting of something very traumatic happening physically, like that can be, uh, what we call that can put someone in what we refer to as the K hole where they're, uh, essentially kind of having like a bad trip on a drug that's changing perception. Cause it's not a true psychedelic and right. how those, those things will function, but it definitely uh, changes the perception of reality because you're not unconscious but you're not like consciously aware of what's going on. And so in my case, uh, I was in and out. I would catch glimpses or, or hear things. And so for me, like the, regarding the PTSD and stuff, I have the blast, the machine gun, the patient movement and dying kind of like in that order, that will repeat itself. Uh, Cause there was a point during the patient movement. I mean, the guy's, like the team sergeant knows he has to send someone to secure a landing zone for the helicopter. And we have to do that in a way that is not in danger to the the flight crew. Uh, so it's usually a direction from which we came or that is behind that is concealed or cut and preferably covered by the terrain so that the enemy cannot shoot at that bird. And so that location in this scenario was down multiple terraces. And remember we talked about earlier how the, the, high avenues of approach in these in this terrain were IED'd. So in order to prevent any further injury from IED, the guys are just going over the edges of these terraces, which were 10 to 15 feet tall. So I was in a Skedco, uh, which is kind of like a rolled up, uh, real thick plastic thing that you can vertically and horizontally hoist a body with. Uh, the PJs do a lot of uh, interesting rescue techniques with Skedcos, but they would I was essentially in a skid and they were, they were vertically lowering me down these like 10 to 15 foot terraces. Sometimes one guy holding me with just one arm as the other guys scrambled down to receive it while I'm receiving blood. And, uh, you know, they're stopping and reassessing me along the way as per how you treat a patient. So they had a very difficult patient movement to get me to the LZ, but there was a point in which during that movement that I was under the, uh, I, I kind of just understood that I was going to die. And that there were two distinct moments that that occurred. And uh, that entire experience is framed from the perception changes on ketamine, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the the way the sound, like I, there was a piercing sound in my right ear when that machine gun was shooting back before the guys moved me. So that's like a part, of, like sharp noises in my right ear will start triggering things for me. And, uh, and there's certain images I have that kind of stick with me that are, it like seared into my memory sure. regarding yeah. what I saw. How do you get off the battlefield? Do you remember? Kind of what I just described. The guys had me in the skid. They had a patient moving party with security. Um, you know, you send a, a, a JTAC who can control air, not necessarily the CCT down to the LZ with a party to also clear the LZ of IEDs. Cause you wouldn't want the bird to come in on an IED. Uh, so I kind of have like a lapse in, Right after that ketamine, I kind of, there's like a period that I don't have a good perception of other than like very stray images or sounds. 
And then I kind of started having more of an awareness towards the end of that patient movement. So it probably took them 15, 20 minutes. And mm-hmm. from what they told, what the guys told me, it was one of the most grueling physical exertion endeavors of their life. So cause you weigh 210 pounds or just the terrain or what? Uh, most, yeah, the terrain, uh, the sun beating down on the threat, like the, the place that the, the compound that we were going to clear actually had guys in it. And that compound overlooked the LZ, but they had already struck the compound with air, uh, during the movement. So sometimes let me back up. So sometimes when we talk about combat, you've been in ticks and stuff. So sometimes they're not as like super intense as they might appear in certain aspects of TV. Like if you watch the, the beach, uh, storming and saving private Ryan, like that's it's completely insane and very chaotic constantly. And firefights are not always like that. Uh, but sometimes they are. And this was kind of more of like constant fire, uh, occasional bombs dropping around the Valley that we were in. And, uh, and then guys just trying to do their best to move their friend to a location so they can get him and other people. Cause there were two other Americans hurt and in an Afghan that was hurt pretty bad. And luckily none of them lost lost any limbs, but we had essentially a mass cow. So they were working to, uh, they had two components of the ODA that were down and, uh, they're trying to rally around that and still do all of the functions that you normally do. So the, in this case, it was a little more chaotic than what a normal firefight would be. Right. From that's, that's not that's sort of my memory of it and what they told me. So wh- when do you wake up in a hospital bed? Like, what do you remember next? Well, just for your own amusement, I, I woke up on the bird. I think the bird had just taken off. Uh, so when I was getting put on the bird, I grabbed the nearest teammate and I grabbed his hand and I said, I'm going to die. And he's like, no, you're not, man. And I told him, uh, to tell someone that I love them. And, uh, cause I just accepted I was going to die. So then I was out and I wake up and I see like the door of this helicopter and I, I'm pretty sure it was open. And in my head, I was like, if this is the medevac, why the fuck's the door open? Like this, <laughs> I was like pissed. And then, uh, I kind of like was very out of it, like very loopy and looked over and I saw someone in a flight suit When I've done many patient handoffs to a flight crew. And when the, you have the very loud din of the rotors of the aircraft, this is a black Hawk. And so if I was doing a patient handoff and didn't have the ability to jack in to talk to him with my Peltors, I would lift their Peltors and yell in their ear, you know, like I gave this guy 50 megs of ketamine, like how copy, you know, so that kind of stuff. This dude, uh, which was a guy in this case, I grabbed him by the chest, pulled him, lifted his Peltors. And I said, are you the flight medic? And he just gave me like a yes, no nod. And then I yelled in his ear, then give me some fucking ketamine. And then I pushed him in the chest and I passed out. So that was... (laughs) I've heard many stories about me, like, re, uh, you kind of, I mean, I kind of act like a dick. It sounded like, like I pulled my saline lock out at one point. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. I mean, when you're kind of out of it and you're like reduced to, I don't know, the, the equivalent instinct. of like yeah. tripping, tripping balls or something on, on a perception changing drug while you're in a lot of pain then you're not like totally there and you're probably not that helpful. So I pulled my saline lock out at one point. They had to put it, they, uh, they had put an IL on me, which is interosseous. Have you ever seen those fast ones that you can put in someone's sternum? No Any videos of this or in no. training. Well, fast ones are like something that will like, it's, it's a little, uh, 
handle thing and you put pressure from a vertical, you put vertical pressure and it goes doom and has all these needles and it injects like a thing directly into the sternum so that you can, anything you can put in an IV, you can put in an IO. So you can put drugs, you can put blood, you can put fluid, etc. And they had two failed fast ones on my chest. I'm just, this is interesting for anybody medical related. Uh, we don't know if it was the type of fast one because there's these newer ones that are lighter because I don't carry the old ones because they're heavy. I don't want that in my kit, but they were lighter. So it's either the angle of attack of how they were putting it in my sternum or uh, like my sternum was very thick because I had lifted my entire life. Like looking back at it, it's funny now. Like <laughs> my sternum was too thick for that fast one. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know, it, it didn't work. So luckily the guys had an alternate form of IO, which the PJ hand screwed uh, one into my humerus, my right humerus. And that's how they gave me the blood after I yanked the thing out of wow. my, uh, my, yanked the saline lock out. Um, I read so that quite, I, I read that sixty eight pints of blood were needed for you. Yeah, so uh, I I went into a surgery and uh, it was an actual sixty eight units of blood because that's what they told us initially. Okay, and that's what I learned the next day when I finally woke up to answer that question. But uh, two, so what I counted one of the medics that was on the staff that had a variety of stories about me from this surgery. He sent me a picture when they were counting all the the empty bags on the ground and I counted 35 units of blood and then I counted, you know, another 25 or so blood products. So that could be packed red blood cells, plasma, et cetera. Uh, cause like getting 68 units of blood is a, is a lot. Like that's like, if you actually needed that transfusion, like when you get 12 units, like that's a lot. So like hearing that we had like 60 something, just like what the fuck was going on? So what happened is that there was this who I have not met or found this person yet. I'm sure I will. This, what I perceive is like a baller surgeon. He did a graph from my, uh, femoral artery or not the artery, maybe the vein. He did a graph from a blood vessel down to my popliteal, which is on the back of the knee. So in other words, like to give perfusion to the, the leg that was still there because the, the vasculature was damaged. He grafted, he took a piece of my vasculature and then, uh, essentially sutured and sewed it into the, the lower part of my leg to allow blood flow to go through that and push into the rest of my leg. So what that means in practicality, what that means all said and done is that he's the reason I have my knee because if that tissue had not, when you don't get perfusion, tissue starts to die. It starts to devitalize that we call it necrosing and then necrosed tissue. You can't like just revive it. Like it'll get infected. And so the first thing you got to do is do a wound debridement of like major uh, blasted or destroyed or dirty tissue. You debride that by cutting it out, which which my job, the 18 Delta, we have training in doing that and amputations and anesthesia and, and, and war surgery. So I kind of like have been involved in this stuff before. But so they were probably doing wound debridement. But the major function that that guy did on my right leg was to uh, give my right leg a chance at having perfusion by doing that vasculature surgery. So that's probably why there was so much blood or blood products being used because they had to, in order to see where the bleed is or like if your if your like vascular graft is working, you have to essentially take loosen the tourniquets and let it bleed and see where it's bleeding. And so if you're losing a little bit of blood as you do that, then you backfill it with new blood. So that would that would be the that's reason crazy. for that. And then also to keep my pressures up. And if you have blood avail- compared to no blood 
like that's the better thing to keep pressures up because it has all those good things I talked about earlier. And as a side note, just to, to give a sustain to not only that medical staff at the role two, that surgery team, but also the, the forward operating base, the FOB, they had people lined up around the building that were of the appropriate blood type to give blood for that surgery. And there's wow. a picture of that I have too. So like there's a lot of Americans that had a, played a huge role, not only my team that did the point of injury, but the guys at the the forward surgical team that conducted the surgery and those medics that helped. And they called this the 36. I just want to give them credit. Sorry, but they had, they had 36 straight hours of doing traumas. They had, I think when they got me, they had already been working for almost 24 hours. And, and I've heard that maybe it was like a 12 hours. It was a very long surgery, whatever they did with me. And they got me when they were already like basically burned out, but they like dug in and, uh, you know, it's almost enough to make me cry right now. They, they, they did the thing. They, they basically did their jobs. They had to dig deep inside themselves and do the job to help save an American. And they put an alert out on the fob and all those other people showed up. Like if you're this blood type, go there. It's like, everyone knows like this is for an American type thing and people showed up and, that's a that's a pretty special thing and that's 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 kind of analogous to probably why you're still even in the military right now and why why a lot of a lot of people have trouble getting out of it because it that there's a lot of things that might irritate us about different components of our units sure. or whatever but like that camaraderie is something that can't be replaced in the coming together of that tribe that cares about each other and I'm incredibly grateful for that it's awesome absolutely awesome okay so the recovery process begins now. Take me through this whole thing. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, the emotions that you're going through on a daily basis have got to be the, the hardest of the grind. But, you know, on top of the physical stuff uh, that you were dealing with, how does this whole process begin for you? Uh, just hanging on, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm in complete care of, of the Army medical system and then um, – my dad and my brother were in Germany when I got there. So blast was on five March by seven March. I was in Germany and, uh, they showed up within a day or so and I was there a week. And then, uh, I was having surgeries from my recollection nearly every day. And I still had my right leg at that point. And you can like use all this the way down to the, to the end. Yeah. So okay. like I had, I had these, uh, solo boots on and I didn't have any blast damage on my foot. And then the demarcation of that, where the boot was going up to the leg was just a complete carnage, like burned to the bone, you know, missing tissue and flesh and muscle down to the bone. So I, I'm at the complete whim of everything. Cause I'm on a, I was on a whole lot of ketamine and other drugs. Uh, I'd had a major surgery in uh, the roll two, like I told you, and then went to Bagram. Not quite sure if I, I think I was just kind of in a holding, holding area there. I, I don't think I had a surgery there, but then started having surgeries in Germany and uh, the significant surgery that I had, which I think was around the ninth or the 10th, was the amputation of my right leg because there wasn't blood perfusion, uh, adequate perfusion. So my entire blood pressure was suffering as a result of my body trying to push blood down into that limb. And the limb was also extremely infected and both limbs are infected for quite a while with uh, fungal and bacterial infections. You know, you, you had such a medical background, you've proven that over and over again throughout this discussion, but... In the process of all this stuff, how much did you give input to the doctors or were you just kind of taking what they said? Uh, every day. Every, every <laughs> time. So I'd be, were they annoyed with you at that point? <laughs> I, you'd have to ask them. I, I would. 
I, there's a saying that goes when you, especially when you're an intense or when you're like a, a significant patient, meaning that you have a lot of issues that you're your own best advocate. And the medical background allowed me to do that because everybody, my family and friends and the nurses and everything, I'd be completely out of it because I'm on a hundred mg of ketamine an hour, which to give everyone perspective, that's the dosage that they will give to treat like PTSD or, uh, or chronic pain symptoms, they'll infuse one a hundred migs over one hour uh, via IV, and then that's kind of like the dose they give someone, and they have lasting effects for PTSD for like three to four months. But I was on that every hour uh, for quite a while, and I was on ketamine overall from the point of injury all the way until seven May, and it was tapered down eventually. But I was on a hundred migs an hour for quite a while, so I was I was pretty, I don't know, loopy. And then when a significant when a doctor would come in and there was a conversation to be had about medical stuff, I'd have this weird uh, Rain Man type thing where I would just kind of zero in and I'm sure the cadence of my talking was very slow and kind of uh, drugged up sounding, but I would have very articulate conversations. And my mom actually recorded one of them at Walter Reed. And really? So I'd, I, I basically made them, this, this was in Walter Reed, but I made them put butcher block paper up with all of the dosages of all my drugs so I would know what was going in my IV, what was going in my epidural, because I had three epidurals at different points and all of them were failing in different ways. So I was having extreme pain and, uh, all the PO, which is by mouth medicine. So I had all the, all the drugs on the, on the wall in front of me because with, uh, we, I couldn't differentiate whether it was a TBI, which would have made sense or just all the drugs, which also makes sense. My short-term memory was pretty shitty. So if someone came in, they would always ask me these questions and I like, I couldn't understand why they wouldn't look at my chart. Cause that's where all the information is. But they'd be like, what, what kind of drugs are you on? And I'd be like, it's on the board right there because when you're in the hospital all the time and you're in an ICU environment, you have people coming in nearly all the time. And it's extremely annoying, especially when you're trying to have some sort of sedation-based sleep, which is not good sleep. But I got to the point where I'd be like, all right, I'm sorry, but this is how it's got to be. What's your name? What are you here to do? What do you want to do for me? And g tell me those things and then get out of here. And so the the doctors that I had to – uh, discuss things with, I would, uh, have these strangely articulate conversations to your point, but, but yeah, it helped quite a bit because, um, there's this thing called Dakin solution, which is sodium hypochlorite, which is the ingredient for bleach. And that, uh, I had these wound vacs on, which are essentially sponges that go on top of a wound and then you put almost like a sterile saran wrap over them and you cut a little incision and you put a little suction thing on it. So it sucks. Uh, and that, that, sponge will suck down to like a very hard uh, granular like plastic feeling type thing because it's uh, taking all the air out of it and what that does is it can pull fluid and thus uh, infectious uh, type uh, serous fluid which is uh, just inflammation and shit like that but uh, so I've done these things in, in, in hospital rooms I've done them in ICUs and in surgery but I had those all over my legs and they help granulate the tissue so it speeds up recovery but what they also had was an IV tubing going into it and uh, that they would push, they would stop my wound vac. So just to be clear, wound vacs are incredibly painful because they're sucking on an open wound. And then they would essentially infuse a uh, bleach solution into my wound, which is obviously painful. They'd let that sit for five or ten minutes and then turn the wound vac back on to suck that out, which is incredibly painful already. So that's just one example of something that happens six times a day every four hours when Jesus. I was in when I was in Germany. And it took me having like this articulate conversation of nearly begging, but also like providing like a <laughs> medical framework and also like a subjective 
opinion of why I wanted some pain meds because I didn't get any extra pain meds for these events. And I th- to my recoll- recollection, I got a 50 mig IV, a slow IV push, and I was actually like comforting the doctor because they're so afraid of delirium in the hospital, sure, which, yeah. is, which is which is essentially kind of tripping balls, I guess. But uh, I would comfort him. I couldn't see like, hey, I'm okay. Like I'm not in the K-hole. I can't see, but like this feels a lot better. Thank you. And so to your point, I've had a, there are a lot of uh, very uh, awful things to deal with, and they're regular surgeries, which are also not fun because I would emerge out of them uh, pretty, I guess, violently uh, from what my dad said, uh, reliving the blast. And uh, it took, you know, once it got probably like 15 surgeries under my belt, that probably started to ebb away, and I had like a family member present when I would emerge. But yeah, it was a, it was a doozy. Okay, so, I I mean, I know ketamine isn't addictive um, from that standpoint, like, you know, the regular oxycodone or oxycontin, whatever it is, you know, all those those painkillers that we're trying to get away from. But to that end, um, are are you at a point where you're starting to think the pain isn't worth it anymore? I mean, I I remember sitting, I had a pain crisis one time. Uh, it lasted hours. I'm pretty sure it lasted like a six hours just sitting there sweating and staring at the wall. And a doctor finally came in because depending on what's going on in the department, they can't respond immediately. And then we didn't know, uh, to alert certain protocols that would have made this more of a, not necessarily like an emergency, like a code, but it would have, uh, created a situation that people would have had to respond to. So we didn't know about that at the time. And I was having a very long pain crisis, which, we have ice packs on my neck and my armpits and my groin, uh, which, you know, my groin is also uh, in a trauma state all too. And uh, the doctor came in and I just was, talked to him staring at the wall and I finally looked at his eyes and I said, I'm in so much pain right now, I want to die. So you need to please do something and please do it quickly. And then he like slowly walked out of the room and looked at my chart on the computer and I wanted to be like, oh. Motherfucker, what do you, and I wanted to like scream at him and I never right. treated a medical personnel uh, poorly, even when uh, I've had some instances where like y- y- you have them when you live in a hospital for a long time. But like a couple instances where I was like that person is fired and they're not working for me again, but I would never treat anybody poorly. But it, I, I was still in incredible pain. I, I mean, I told you I had three epidurals. I had one night I call the werewolf night where it was just like felt like it turning into a werewolf for an hour where I was squeeze, squeezing my dad's. And the and the male nurse's hands, and just kind of like screaming and growling for literally an hour. Um, it's wh- whether a filter breaks on a epidural line or like the, a bag runs dry, like just little simple things that I understand because I'm a medical provider. But uh, a lot of a lot of stuff. And then going to surgery when I got the Walter Reed, it was surgeries Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it's they're debriding my wounds and uh, getting the, the infectious tissue out. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they closed my. They closed my uh, amputations and the way that they had to do that on my right leg because there was so much uh, infected tissue that had to be debrided, including skin. There wasn't enough skin to go around the limb. So I basically had my knee in an open wound with no skin to cover it. So they, there's a really great plastic surgeon uh, and a, a very kind person. His name's Dr. Souza, and he is the plastic surgeon at Walter Reed, and he did all his civilian training, and then he chose to joined the military mm-hmm. to work on military guys that were hurt in combat. And he took a 71 incision, uh, like a cut on my back, which is like a big Z going all the way down the right side of my back to take like a three or four inch wide 
thing of skin. So not a skin graft, but literally dissecting skin off my back and then using that to like geometrically like uh, suture in on my limb. And so he's the second person that I have to thank for why I have that right knee because being an above the knee amputee. Well, that was where I was going to ask next. I mean, was that ever a discussion point for for those who don't know if – when it's above the knee, it's a whole different set of problems from a rehab standpoint and everything else and how much of your leg they can save for prosthetics and this, that, and the other. Uh, because you're below the knee, it's a lot easier. I mean, you know, easy relatively speaking, of course. But was it ever a discussion that they said, listen, let's just cut this thing off right above the knee and, and, go, and get fresh? Luckily, I never heard that discussion because okay. I would have told everyone to eat my ass or something. But, uh, <laughs> Here's a spoon. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have both knees because for separate reasons, they wanted to, different people wanted to amputate each knee. But like, for example, on that FST, there was a, uh, there was an ortho surgeon. So he was able to cut my, he was able to amputate my tibia in a way that set me up for prosthetics because he was an ortho. So like had that guy not been there or that other guy that had not done that vascular surgery on my right leg, then I made on to have my knees and being at a double above the knee is really rough. And my friends that are, <clears throat> my friends that are above the knee amputees would say that like a below the knee amputation is like a, a paper cut, but mine are pretty short. Uh, my limbs below my knee, whereas like if you, uh, you get your foot blown off by an IED, then they'll amputate, but you'll have most of your tibia. So you know, the way lever arms work, the longer the limb, then the more efficient things work. And then to your point, having that actual joint is huge. So it's it's just much more difficult for an above the knee to uh, walk correctly, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of the length of his femur. Uh, but I mean, the, so I wasn't involved in those conversations, but like Dr. Souza gotcha. did an amazing surgery. I have literally back skin and he took a blood vessel. Man, this guy used a thermal camera for the first time in his life. Took a picture of my back to confirm where my Terry's major blood vessel was, which is part of the rotator cuff. And then uh, he drew the day before where he wanted in size. And then he took all that skin plus the blood vessels and he sutured that Terry's major blood vessel into my popliteal, which is the one on the back of the knee. So this big flap of back skin on my lower li- limb has blood supply, like from a major artery. Wow. So th- this is like not like Frankenstein <laughs> stuff, but like this is like the on the cusp it's of like damn near close. <laughs> right. Like he goes and he goes to con- like conventions and stuff and teaches this procedure. And uh, and he didn't take any muscle off my back to do it. So I still have like my lats so I can walk around, be jacked, you know, or that's, try hey, to that's still important at this point. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> when do you hit rock bottom or do you hit rock bottom? Hmm. Well, being on ketamine constantly kind of gives you, uh, you know, this is echoing some people that have done psychedelic drugs, but you kind of echo like a very loving and grateful type mindset. So in the hospital, like you don't, you don't really have a choice. You're just kind of like surfing the waves of whatever happens to you. And I mean, the cleaning lady would bring in trash and I'd be like, Hey, I just want you to know I'm grateful for you. (laughs) (laughs) There's like, there are the people bringing me my breakfast in the morning that have no, they're not medical providers. I'm just like, Hey, thank you so much. I'm really grateful that you did. You know? (laughs) So, um, the, the hardest part I, and I'm not going to get into all these stories, but like I had a, a bowel impaction for a week, uh, where you can't poop. And I'm like manually trying to break up poop multiple times a day to get that out. I had a catheter in my my penis for uh, almost two months because the urethra was damaged. So I, I had an incision in my like in it's called suprapubic, but it basically goes through your abdomen into your bladder. So that's how I was peeing. And then once they pulled that out, I, I was uh, 
once I pulled the catheter out of my actual penis, I was pissing blood for oh, almost a week because the other catheter was still in my bladder because they didn't want me to use my penis. So, like, I, I, so like one week I couldn't uh, poop, and it's wildly uncomfortable if you've never had that. And the next week I'm pissing blood. Uh, and then in order to get off IV medications, you have to go on a bunch of um, by mouth or PO medications. And I was on methadone and a lot of it, which in retrospect, I would have denied it. And uh, so methadone is what they give uh, heroin addicts to get off heroin. Gotcha. And uh, Duff McKagan is the basis for Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. And he came to Walter Reed one day and he told me methadone was worse because he, you know, they did a lot of heroin in the 80s. And then he did like a methadone clinic. And he said getting off methadone is worse than heroin. Just, I don't know. So I was on like... 20 migs, 20 migs, and 30 migs for my three doses, which is a lot. And then I was also still on like morphine and other uh, like uh, gabapentin type drugs for nerve pain, which none of them really did anything. So my goal when I became an outpatient was like, I'm getting off all these things. And so you, the way you get off methadone for me was stepping it down by 10 migs every week. And so that takes, you know, six to eight weeks, but there's like a rebound almost to your point about like the, what you're talking about, the addiction with ketamine, there's like a rebound effect from coming off of something that is uh, a severe narcotic. And I would have, I had a pain, I remember one day I had a pain crisis, uh, started at like two or 3 PM and it lasts till like one in the morning. And it's literally like, like just rocking back and forth on the bed, rubbing my limbs to try and give them some other nerve sensation. And, uh, like it's, it's like being a junkie. Like I can understand why someone who had been exposed to a drug, whether it was provided by a medical provider or that they just picked up on the streets and they don't have it. And they're in this extreme pain. And the only thing that makes it go away is taking that drug or just fucking riding it out. So yeah, uh, it was, that was, that was pretty miserable. And that was a pretty low place. People need to understand the grand picture here because in going through all this, you know, it was six and a half months later after the day that you stepped on that IED that you were out of the hospital. Like that's insanity. Well, I, I got out of an inpatient. I was at, I was still at Walter Reed until September, like you said, and then. But I was an inpatient for those two months, so I became an outpatient on May fourteenth. So, yeah, I was like still attending the hospital on the weekdays uh, up until September. To your point, uh, there are two other major variables going on here, which is um, the war that's still going on, and then walking. So, which would you want to hear about first? Because those those play into the emotional health. Let's do the war that's still going on. On on March 21st, uh, Will Lindsay got killed, and uh, he was a friend of mine. And when I first got to a team, he was like a guy that he was on that team for a little bit, and then he got moved. But he was he could he could have been a guy that was a dick to me, you know. Like there are all kinds of different types of people in every type of unit, including SF. So he could have been a dick, but he was very nice. We got along. Uh, in the pre-mission training leading up to this particular deployment, I, he was in our company by then and I actually got him uh, tasked to our team. And, uh, and, uh, so he was one of the team leaders on the, the mission that I had to plan mostly by myself when everyone was gone. And, uh, so I, I, he was just a good guy. I always saw him around. And, and when we deployed the team sergeant, I always tell you about, and Will and I were on the bus going to the ADAG, which is just where you t- fly away from, from, uh, uh, for Carson region. And, uh, he told me about his family and he had four girls and he told me about his wife and everything. And so it was a few couple, you know, a few weeks after I got hurt and he got killed and it was pretty, uh, I guess devastating, uh, to, 
to be the one that's in the hospital, you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Like you're a medic, yeah. you want to take care of everybody in the in your company. That particular night, you know, there were multiple uh, casualties, but Will and uh, uh, EOD Tech got killed that night, and uh, that continued. There was another guy named Mike Riley later. Um, a few months later, he got killed, and he had been uh, an instructor of mine and a little bit of a mentor, but like kind of like a just a dude and just a good dude and very very smooth in a house. So when you you kind of you probably know this when you do certain things in operations or in training with people, you kind of have like this weird bond. And so he was just yeah, very absolutely. smooth. He was so smooth clearing houses. Like he prepped a flashbang once, and we were uh, we had to go across a hallway to breach another room, and so he prepped the flashbang, which is. His, Nobody do this, please. But uh, he had it in his offhand, and uh, he was still manipulating his weapon properly. And then he was the one man going in the next room, threw the flashbang in, and then we cleared the room. But he like prepped it in the previous room, and we just you know had like a five meter hallway to walk through. So it was just like he was just so he was super smooth, and he was a good instructor. And and then um, a few days later, one of my extremely good friends, Elliot Robbins, got killed, and. Uh, that's more, uh, that's more of an offline story, but, uh, so that's, I would talk to him regularly and he was going to live with me after the trip. And, uh, so that, that hurt. And then trying to recover from that was in, uh, late June. So we're trying to recover from those, those losses on top of my own losses. I'm in this place that I hate. It's almost, it was kind of, it wasn't Walter Reed's fault, but you just don't want to be there. Like you're getting treatment and you're getting care and you're getting prosthetic care, but like, it's kind of in like a mixture of, uh, somewhere between a barracks and a low grade apartment. Mm-hmm. And I had one of my parents there all the time, but it's just, it's not, it's not a place you want to be from a mental, emotional perspective. And I journaled every day or started writing poems during all this time. And it, it was just difficult to get through. And then I remember my brother and his wife were visiting and then my Sergeant major got killed on an operation. And, oh, uh, it was, and he was, he was kind of the, uh, in one of, in one of his memorials, somebody said that men want to look up to green berets, you know, maybe like fluffing our ego or something, but green berets looked up to Ryan Sarter. And so that's the kind of guy he was. He was like the guy you would want as we have company sergeant majors in in special forces. So he was like, he took care of everyone. I worked for him for four months in 2018 on a B team stint. And so just losing, guys along the way and all of them ha- I had some sort of connection with on top of it was like getting beaten down man like you're trying to climb up and you just keep getting a boot to the face like did that it, scene did it make it seem like story. your recovery wasn't worth it or or I mean how did it hamper your day-to-day sort of trying to get your life back together it, it just reinforced the desire that I didn't want to be there um, yeah. I put, I put the effort in, um, despite all that I would do, even before I could walk, I would do three hours of phys- physical therapy a day. Like they said, the people who are the best walkers do these things. And I was like, all right, I'm going to fucking do those things. And, uh, I, I told the story in a different podcast, but uh, I had to do go when you're in the army and you're a, uh, a wounded person, the official term is wounded warrior. You go to this warrior transition unit or battalion, and it's just supposed to kind of be a holding place for that person to med board or go back to a unit as more of an administrative thing, especially when the war was uh, very busy in the 2010, 11 timeframe. But, uh, so I was there and I had to do goal setting and I went in there and I was in a wheelchair. So I did wheelchair life for 
a couple months, which is awful. And, uh, I, I, it was like, it was June, it was, uh, early June. And I think I had had the, like my left leg casted and socketed and I was waiting on my right leg to heal in order to get a socket for it. So then I could start walking. And so I said, I want to walk. I want to walk with assistance by the end of June. I want to get that leg cast by the end of June. And then I want to walk with assistance by the end of July. And then I'll walk without assistance by the end of August. And the woman who's probably going to catch ship if this ever gets back to them, but she was like, <laughs> Ooh, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's possible because that's typically what is not, what is not possible for, for, I don't want to say normal people, but that's just what the average is. And in my head, I was just like, Oh, motherfucker. Like, like, so uh, I ended up walking on uh, June 18th, and I owned my legs on June 27th, and walked without assistance before June was over, and uh, and would continue therapy and and having ups and downs with amputee life changes how you can walk or not. But so I started walking in under four months from the injury. That's insane. That's that's unreal. Um, just kind of reflecting back on those moments that you were thinking about your brothers who were gone and. And everything else and where you sit now, are the thoughts any different about them and about the whole situation? I would say that maybe when I'm out of the army, I might answer that question a little differently, but it makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of the people that it, I, I think of the guys that we lost, but I also think about their families because I'm very close to the gold star wives and we can get into the special force foundation stuff in a second, but I started working with them to raise money so that it would, they would support the gold star wives and their kids. And, um, Ryan's wife has three kids. Will's wife has four and I'm close with them. Now I know what it does to them. And I know what being, a, I know what getting hurt does to my family. I know what it does to me and my emotions because uh, we're not just like these awesome, perfectly emotional people that then get hurt. Like I had stuff that happened previously in my life and in actuality, my emotional trauma in my life is intimately bonded to the physical trauma of when I lay dying. And so I know what it does to me. I know what it does to my family. I know how my family sacrificed and which I'm incredibly grateful for all of them in the, in the months that would follow uh, with their time and energy and money and stuff just to be there. So I know what the cost is, is my point. And I would want anybody who decides, who makes a decision for, you know, America to go to war, to send motivated and young male and female soldiers to war, whether they are combat arms or not, the effect that it has on everybody is significant. And just one death can be crippling to a family. It can significantly impact a community. And I would just want everyone to really consider the cost of that. And uh, just to kind of be vague on a point, like I was fighting ISIS and that we have, you know, things may change us, you know, the political climate over there, but like kind of won against them in the area that I was in. And then the Taliban is a different story. So I just, I'm someone who needs to know why. And so I ask those mm -hmm. questions personally all the time. And that's not, I'm going to refrain from getting into that type of conversation here because of the active duty aspect of it. But I just would want people to consider the cost. That's all. 
Well, it's a, it's a conversation we have routinely, um, you know, the value of war, the purpose of it and decisions that are made. Uh, and I'm not going to force you to, you know, obviously say things, uh, you know, but I, I would add this um, to your point. The people who make decisions to go to war and furthermore, the people who make sometimes strategic, operational and tactical decisions about war aren't always in the best position to do that. And that's a fair criticism, whether you're on active duty in the National Guard like I am or not. I mean, you know, that that is uh, something that we struggle with routinely um, because everybody has different skin in the game, right? The guy on the ground has much different skin in the game than, than the guy wearing stars on his shoulder boards or on his chest in Washington, D.C., talking to his secretary so-and-so. So there there is a different level uh, that everybody has invested in this whole thing. And you know, the old saying goes downhill. My brother's a plumber. It's the first thing he told me. Shit flows downhill. So uh, we have to sort of bear the brunt of that. Um, but in the same respect, as you said, I would always say to people, as you said, that the people you, you send in harm's way, make sure you're willing to send them with the same ferocity and violence of action and the same uh, desire to accomplish the mission whether you're sitting in Washington or not, right? You have to have that. That has to be consistent. Otherwise, if it's not, and we got to we got to a point in that in Iraq, for the record. I mean, I was there. I have no problem saying it. And I'll say it repeatedly to anybody in uniform or out. We got to a point where we were there for the wrong reasons toward the end of the thing. Um, and, and so for sure, when you get to that point where, where politics and the extension, the physical extension of politics that war is don't match up, that's where you know we're in a bad spot, right? Like th- that's where things get really troublesome. So- I think yeah. you make a good I think you Go make ahead. a good point Mark because uh the entire premise I can't speak for the other services but I'm assuming that they have a similar construct but the the concept of the AAR the after action review is supposed to be inherent in everything that we do and when in the teams that I've been on when I get off of an operation we put all of our SI away the sensitive items we report up that we're good and like all headcount and all the men weapon and Men, weapons, and equipment are good. And then we congregate and we have an AAR and we discuss in the classic AAR format what was supposed to happen on this operation and what are things that we can sustain and what are things that we can improve. And that should be and is supposed to be. And I, I, don't, even, I, can't, I don't know if it's doctrinally, but it, it, it makes sense that it should be inherent in part of everything that you do in the military. If I go and conduct a flat range at Fort Carson with my dudes – and I forget a litter when I'm the medical provider for that range, then not only is that like kind of breaking the rules, but that's an AR point. And I would have like had to go back and get it that morning, but that would have been an AR point. Like, Hey, your planning sucked because you didn't get this shit done that it's your job. And so that type of attention to detail is what we should be doing at the lowest levels. And then it makes sense to do that for anything in that chain of command all the way up to who's making strategic decisions that also influence my tactical decisions on the ground. So I don't have, unfortunately I don't have any significant like limitations tactically, maybe, maybe situations where airstrikes, you know, couldn't be called. So I just used recon by fire and didn't die type thing, but the AAR should be inherent in what we do. And so whether we're talking strategy, um, you know, there's various articles that have come out that have basically said like the war in Afghanistan is like, has no winnable objective or something. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. So the, the AR is fair and the AR from the lower ranks is fair. The reason that I can't like legally, I can talk about this stuff, 
because I don't represent the DOD. So I'm absolved from anything that I could pretty much say next. It's just that it's what people get upset by afterwards. And that's okay. But the, as long as I'm not being an asshole, because it's kind of like the, the first amendment, right? Like if I have the freedom to say whatever I want, that's, that's okay. But if I just, if I, if I say racist things, then that's being an asshole. Yes. So there's a way to go. There's a way to go about first amendment type stuff, uh, in a way that doesn't make me an asshole in the same way that I can AAR things, whether it's, you know, my lower level, my team, my company, my battalion, my unit, there's a way that I can do that if I do it in an appropriate manner. And we shouldn't shy away from that because the guy on the ground's perspective, as you said, is very important. You've been on convoys with SF guys and you've had firefights with them. And that's different than the staff deployment you did. And so you can see both sides of it. I have the, I have like some guy in the ground perspective, regardless of what we're talking about, whether we're talking about training or life and group or, you know, being on certain types of operations like that, that stuff, uh, we, the organization of special forces is supposed to be bottom up, but it's becoming very top down driven. And so that kind of clouds the ability for the bottom up type well, uh, that, lateral that part thinking. of that is the danger in making special forces so commonplace now, right? It's it, it's it's not as secretive as it used to be, and because people understand the term and understand what they do, now that there there has to be more topside of it. So, sure. it, you know that's that's the downside. And yeah, I talk to a lot of operators who feel that way. You know, the the, the whole idea of what used to be clandestine is no longer clandestine. Um, you know, to a certain extent, changes the constructs of it because again. There were only a select few people in the know who knew what the capabilities were. Now that everybody does, well, SEAL, right. SEAL Team Six does this, and the Green Berets yeah. do this, and you know. And, and I'm fine with that. Like I'm friends with, I'm friends with. I, I would like to claim friendship. Uh, I know the <laughs> general. I know General Bodet since he texts me regularly. He's the the USAC commander, and then I know uh, some four stars that I've been able to have personal conversations, which I I very much appreciate. But here's the thing: so wouldn't have had those conversations had I not been fucked up. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. But those guys are very smart and they're trying to improve the organization. But unfortunately, the organization cannot solely be improved top down. That's just not how it works. When you want to talk about culture or you want to talk about things like that, it has to happen throughout the entire ranks. And so the conversation needs to occur in the entire ranks. So it has to happen bottom up and it has to happen top down. And then sometimes the solution of you know a three or four star is not something that is necessarily going to happen the means is not going to necessarily accomplish the ends. And that's just a limitation of their command, which would be a terribly difficult job anyway, uh, as you know, any kind of command position would be very difficult. And maybe that's a reason I didn't want to do it to answer your question earlier. <laughs> so I could just avoid that. Just be, just do dude stuff. Right. Uh, but so th- th- that's, that's what I would want to occur, uh, like within mm-hmm. my unit or within the military, um, is, is to continue those discussions because, we have programs that need to be in place and I'm going to just reference some obvious ones, but like we have the EO, the equal opportunity and sharp. So those things needed to happen because the, the uh, culture of the military is, is glacial and how it's implemented. It kind of lags behind regular society and that's just how it is. And so you have certain top down directives that like, okay, now you do this PowerPoint and therefore you are, your T for trained on like being uh, someone who uh, is equal opportunity or, doesn't sexually harass people, but we know that those two things still happen. And so it's not that they made the wrong decision in enforcing an annual training that makes me have to do a PowerPoint or an annoying like online training thing every year, but that's not fixing the problem. And so 
that's not uh, that's not on them that's on everybody and so it's on like every and maybe it raises awareness so it has like an effect but um, that's just an example of like a policy that is implemented that is the best that you can do from a command perspective and i understand that and i am it's like I'm not faulting anybody. I'm just saying that we have top-down directives, but the, there's responsibility on the force also to improve, and that and that goes to whether we're talking about like how we're doing operations on the on the ground, or it talks about how we're doing things in garrison and so on. Because to your point about the plumbing quote, turds float to the top. Mm-hmm. So the good like the the biggest turds will float in the water, and so you have you have the worst examples, and so those are the things the command has to deal with, and. You know, from an enlisted guy's perspective, sometimes that appears that guys have to uh, guys and women and men who are in command positions have to do things to cover their ass because otherwise they have to answer for why did X, Y and Z happen in your unit? And then it crushes their career if like they did something the wrong way. So sometimes you have people that are career driven and then usually you have regular people in the center that are just trying to ride the wave of what is asked of them in their organization and within the structure of the military. And then you have like the turds at the other end that are, or you have the really good people who are like really people focused and maybe it hurts their career. And then you have like the turds on the other end. And then most people are somewhere in the middle, just trying to, trying to do the right thing. And, uh, so the AAR, I guess all of that is a rant that I've been thinking a lot about, uh, that the AAR is incredibly important to developing things that are important to people. And that's my focus. Cause I like the, the war is what it is. And I, I know we're kind of getting in the route of like, what, what are the, what are the thoughts of the war? Like, are we lingering too long in Afghanistan and things like that? And uh, that stuff I hope is going to be uh, sorted out, you know, cause it influences things like economy and stuff. But what I'm concerned about as a medic Cause I, when I'm a medic on a team, like I take care of a guy's mental, physical, and emotional, and maybe can influence spiritual well-being, And I take that very seriously. Mm-hmm. And now that I, like I have my team still and I love them, but I'm not with them all the time. So now I think about the force of like special forces. So I want to influence that. And if there are deficits from the DOD, there are, there are other pl- things that come in to replace those. That's what the special forces foundation does. But if there are deficits within my unit or within my regiment about how we take care of humans, because one of the tenets of special operations is humans are more important than hardware, then I think it's fair to just ask everyone to consider how that can be improved in a respectful way instead of bitching about how things are wrong. And I have an essay written about this that I'm going to put up, but uh, I I kind of of just assume I'm going to get some like uh, poo-pooing from the top down. Uh, people kind of yelling at me for doing this, but, but I think it's important. And so if, if it's the right thing to do, then we shouldn't avoid it because it, it creates uh, questions of why is this guy talking about this kind of shit type thing. Okay. So we are over a year now, about, about a year, you know, almost two months as we record this at the end of April after your blast. And, uh, you know, I assume that uh, life is as normal as can be, or maybe I shouldn't assume that. Let's phrase it. I mean, is life normal for you at this point? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to go pity party. I'll just give you a kind of one sentence to sum it up. Like, I just really can't do anything the same. I can, I can walk uh, most days, but like sometimes I like the past two days I've been walking around with forearm crutches because I've got this like blister on my leg. And so it's up and down with amputee life, uh, you know, a bone bruise, you know, a, a muscle bruise. It keeps you off your legs. So I can't do things the same way. I can't run. I can't hike. I can't ski the same. I can't have sex the same. 
uh, also due to like the genital injuries. Um, I can't really do much of anything the same. I can't lift the same cause I've lifted all the time. Um, I I've accepted these things, but they, they get me down. So uh, as far as there's a new normal to answer your question and I'm riding the cusp of that and ideally it's going to continue trending upward, but it's not normal compared to what happened before by any means. Like if I'm sitting on just one last, uh, mm-hmm, not, I don't want a pity party, but if I'm on no, the couch and I've got the legs off and I got to take a raging piss and my legs hurt and I'm having nerve pain, I have to put these cold ass liners on and I have to roll these sleeves up. I'm basically wearing thigh high rubber thigh highs all the time because that's how the suction system with the legs work. And maybe other amputees are like, you know, get over it type dude. But I mean, this is a... Uh, well, it's still relatively a, new to you. Yeah, I mean, st- I think stress is relative and I would never poo-poo someone's uh, experience with uh, trauma or stress or anything or anxiety just because like I have more of it or someone else has more of it. Because when we when we try to term things and uh, we try to define our stress and our suffering in relative terms, then we don't feel worthy of it because someone else has it worse. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't, like you can still honor your own your own suffering and, you know, work through it. So anyway, it, it kind of sucks, but I'm alive. And I tell my that I try to tell myself that every day and I work on myself every day. So it's not, it's not normal by any means, but I'm trying to, trying to get adapted to this new normal to your point. Well, let me ask you this then. What are you grateful for at this point? I do that every day. Uh, I try to in journaling. Uh, I'm grateful to be alive that's the first thing uh, I thought about. I thought about dying a lot and um, during a depressive depression in 2018. And so I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful that I can walk the days I can be upright. Like I'm grateful for that, even though I'll be like, God damn it. I'm walking with a cane instead of no cane, you know, like, but each, each time that I'm able to walk and I'm able to walk without pain, that's, that's a good day. It's very difficult to have, positive out positive outlook when you when you're you can't even walk it's it's difficult for me so uh i'm grateful for the girlfriend i have she's very compassionate and has helped me heal um i'm grateful that i have the opportunity to express my opinions or viewpoints in a way that might help people because i i you the reason that we're even talking is because of my social media kind of um, no pun intended blew up last year. And I, I kind of talk about emotional health stuff on it and I get questions all the, or I get comments from people all the time. You know, my husband committed suicide after his deployment 10 years ago. I have cancer. I was raped. All these very intense emotional or physical traumatic events that people are sharing with me because I share vulnerably share mine. So I'm just, I'm grateful that I can have some sort of platform in order to interact with people and, let uh let everybody know that it's okay to feel these ways, and then that doesn't mean that we're not worthy of our own love. So I mean, those are just quick. I could keep going on with gratitude, uh, and one of the harder things is trying to think about what I like about myself. So I'm, I work on these things regularly to try and I, I got to do it to stay atop the waves. One of the things that I actually am jealous of you of, and I don't mean to phrase it that way. That was probably poor. Uh, you're you're gonna go biceps, right? Well. No, because mine are big. So uh, <laughs> if you've seen my social media, I'm Every, in good shape. Everyone's so, rolling their eyes at us right now. <laughs> <laughs> only the haters, baby. Only a hater. No, what I mean is that, and for the right, you are jacked. I mean, I've seen pictures of you. I mean, you're still, even after everything, you're, you're, you're in 
upper body in great physical condition. I know your legs obviously have atrophied for, you know, from all the surgeries and everything else, but um, regardless, you got to be on Joe Rogan's podcast, and I'm super yeah. freaking jealous. Like, yeah. that, I, I, I want to be, like, I have weird goals in life. You know, like, I want to be a judge on a cooking show, but I also want to be on Joe Rogan's podcast one day. Like, that, that, that to me is the pinnacle. That, that was awesome. It was, and it was, uh, I didn't expect to be, which the unit was like, what the hell is he doing? Why, you know, why don't he ask? Because Sturgill was always like, you're going to be on the podcast, man. And I was like, yeah, we'll see how that goes because, you know, Joe is the host. So I'd, I didn't want to get my hopes up or like tell people that I was going to be on it. And then I was. And uh, the video they made of just like Joe and I talking for 20 minutes or so is like 4 million views. And so I've actually gotten recognized sitting with Sturgill like in New York City someone's like, Hey, are you, uh, is your name Justin? And, uh, and uh, it's su- super awkward. Cause it's like the guy that is essentially, he would say he's a low grade celebrity, but he's, he's a musician sitting next to me. <laughs> but yeah, Joe is, uh, I, that was a great experience. I, I would love to be on there again. Uh, take me with you <laughs> <laughs> because at the very, even if you're not on the air, his facility, you're not, you, they don't let us take pictures or anything, which is fair, but he's got a great facility. He has an awesome gym, which you would you just the gym alone, you'd be like, that would be worth the trip. But he's got a bunch of cool stuff in that. It's like a warehouse and uh, sweet vehicles and a sweet gym setup and a coffee machine that rules. And it was it was a very nice facility. He's a very good dude. He's the same off the air, maybe a little bit more uh, dudeish, but he's the, he's the same dude. Same guy. I, I've been to his comedy shows and, and I've met him after. Like, that's one of those strange things. I don't know if you know this. If you go to his comedy show. Um, cause I have friends who are in the MMA business who know him personally, um, and have met him several times, yeah. but after his comedy shows, he walks out the back door and greets fans. Like he goes out, out, out like a, you know, a side door of the, of the venue and he sat there and gre- greeted fans. You know, he met me and my wife, we took pictures with him. He's a super cool guy. I mean, I'm just, you know, I, I'll, I'll Very, never yeah, be that cool. So I just kind of aspire <laughs> to be around it. I, I'm just great. I'm grateful to have done that. Uh, and then hopefully you know, I don't want a, a following or an audience just to just to have it to like push my own relevancy or to make money or anything. I, I just want to like I want to talk to people like you want to interview people. I want to have good discussions. His his format of podcast, which is kind of what you're doing with his military podcast, is that he gets to get into uh, depth with certain topics that you don't otherwise get to. For instance, not not nothing political here, but if you if you do or don't like Bernie Sanders and you listen to his conversation with Joe for 90 minutes, it's just a different dude than what you see on, on TV. Sure. And it's just, it's fascinating. And he has all these high level intellectuals. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson has been on there. And so I would love to get to the point where I can interview people like that and just basically model his, his podcast. And, and he can always fall back to MMA and comedy. So I, I would fall back on, you know, special operations, military strength and conditioning and so on. But that's, that's what I'm modeling my podcast after and and yeah so he's done a lot of sweet things because he's a, he's an innovator you know like conan o'brien he's an innovator mm-hmm. in their field so that that's what i look up to and what's the name of your podcast going to be uh it took me a long time to figure it out it's just called the justin lassick podcast <laughs> and creative uh, i like it, it but uh, right to the point you get right there yeah i i just figured that i, I had a company it was called 70s big and like so i've met people to be like yeah, I know what that is. And I'm like, oh, that's mine. And they're like, oh, okay. So my name wasn't associated with it, which is fine. And I was racking my brain, like what to call it or what to, what company to make and stuff. And I was just like, right, screw it. If I keep trying to procrastinate and try to be perfect, then I'm never going to get this done. But I've got a couple episodes recorded uh, and then more planned to record soon. The second one's not even up yet, but 
Uh, and then I've done uh, the Sorenex podcast and this Hazard Ground podcast. So kind of is just culminating to hopefully push a little. If anybody wants to check it out, it's going to be a little more of the same. And hopefully I'll get way more interesting and uh, intelligent people than I am to interview along the way. <laughs> so what's next for you? <clears throat> well, I want to get out of the military. And uh, that's the first thing. But that's uh, conditional on the whole pandemic. Uh, the world opening back up and the med board process occurring. But because I'm going to be compensated for my injuries uh, to some, some level, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be comfortable financially. And then if these endeavors that I'm getting in uh, provide a little bit of extra side money, then all the better to either invest or put into other companies. So the main, the main three things I'm going to be doing are the podcast, uh, public speaking. If I get into that, that'd be more like a 2021. And then I'm going to be uh, getting into writing books. So I've written uh, five books in the past and four of them are just eBooks through my seventies big website, but I want to put a poetry book out and then I want to write a book that it's not going to be like the classic, like I got hurt and here's my story type book or, or like here's some war stories. It's not going to be like a classic military type book. It's going to be, uh, kind of like showing what the, the, the emotional experience was leading into all of the, all this war, the effect that war had, and then the, the aftermath of like one deployment and then the injury mm -hmm. and then the aftermath of that. So it's going to be kind of like a fill almost similar a, to the discussion a, we're having now, just in right. Form. A paradigm of emotional well being yeah. infused into the story. Uh, cause you gotta be like silly or you gotta, you gotta like tell, you gotta tell the cool guy shit if people are going to stick around. And so, Hopefully there'll be entertaining parts and like educational parts, uh, all kind of put into one thing. But so I'll be doing that. And if no, if I can't find a publisher for a poetry book or that, then I'll just do them on my own and start my own publishing company. Incredibly amazing stuff, man. Uh, again, you are, uh, on social media all over the place. I know your Instagram, uh, at justin.lasic and that is L A S C E K everywhere else they could find you. Yep, uh, Justin Lassick on Twitter, which is kind of non-existent and a ter terrible place to be on the internet. Uh, but <laughs> trust me, uh, it's part of my job to be there every day. It's it's <laughs> yeah. The, there'll be a uh, there'll be a website where I start putting essays out. It'll be just be justinlassick.com. There's the podcast, and then uh, just to do the due diligence here of my advocacy, uh, reference the Special Forces Foundation earlier. But I'll give you a quick blurb on no, it please because do. If, if people don't want to follow me. And if they don't have the financial means to contribute to the foundation, then they can always just uh, share some of the social media associated with it. But this organization takes care of the people that conduct war operations within the context of special forces. So uh, we wanted a better uh, organization to help our guys. And so I'm, I work with the board of directors who's an active duty sergeant major, which I don't know how he does all that, but he's going to retire soon. Thank God and uh, kind of be in an advisory position for the foundation. But they take care of basically war. You know, it it can destroy our emotions, our families, our brains, our bodies. And so the Special Forces Foundation takes care of all those uh, populations. But the one that obviously is near and dear to my heart is uh, taking care of the Gold Star families. And so they do a lot of work uh, to support them, whether it's help, you know, paying off mortgages or purchasing vehicles or providing the financial security for those. Uh, in this case, there are no, uh, gold star husbands with special forces right now. So it's just, that's why I keep saying wives, but, um, it takes care of them. And, uh, so 
I got involved with it last year and, and through Sturgill, he uh, did an entire mini tour when his uh, newest record, Sound and Fury, came out last fall. We, he did an entire like two-week tour, six shows, and all the proceeds went to the foundation. And and then one dollar from every ticket from the arena tour was going to them. And I was I was traveling on tour with uh, Sturgill and the band, and uh, Tyler Childers would introduce me, and I would talk to these arenas. So I talked to, I think over a hundred thousand people with the 10 or 11 shows we actually got through before the Corona shut things down. And I also cried probably in front of like 50,000 people because the crowd would keep cheering and, you know, make me cry on stage. So if that's not a, a shout for uh, emotional vulnerability, that it's okay to, to feel weak or to, to cry as a mm-hmm. dude, then that that's it. But the foundation uh, takes care of, of green berets. They've, they've taken care of me. Uh, there's a separate, fun so that anything that comes through like the tour doesn't go to me so that there's not that conflict of interest but is it's a foundation that i care about and that it's picking up where the dod slacks with caring for us whether they're we're talking about active duty guys wounded guys or retired guys and so if anybody wanted to contribute which you don't have to then you can go to specialforcesfoundation.org you can search special forces foundation on instagram and again money is hard to come by especially right now in this pandemic so if you can't contribute or you don't want to, that's okay. But if you just share uh, something on social media or check it out, uh, then then I'd be incredibly grateful and honored that anybody would consider doing that. Well, again, Special Forces Foundation, uh, an amazing charity. And Justin, I got to tell you, man, you know, uh, this is the longest Hazard Ground podcast we've recorded. Um, that's entirely my fault. No, it's not. And, and I will tell you <laughs> this much. Um, Look, you, you're a warrior in body uh, as a Green Beret. All you guys are. Um, but in your post-blast life, you're still a warrior in spirit. And I think that has come through uh, incredibly uh, in this podcast. And I don't mind you having a lot to say because this is your story and I want you to tell it. But, I mean, I, I'm proud of where you are now uh, and what it took to get to this point uh, because there's a lot of great men who – would have succumbed to a lot of this stuff along the way. Uh, nobody would, would think sideways of you if you did. But the fact that you're still here and still going and living a new normal life for you, I think is a testament to that warrior mindset that you always have, brother. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I'll virtually throw my arms around you, give you a big hug and, and, and say I love you. But uh, certainly thank you so much for, for everything you've shared with me. And, and, and thank you for being here, man. I can't think, just I'm humbled. I appreciate that, Mark, and the very kind words. And I'm grateful that you guys brought me on this particular show. And you keep doing your thing as your your lieutenant colonel, right? Yeah. So you keep doing your thing in your military service, and thank you for your service. Uh, but I, the, thank you so much. I I feel like I'm just a dude who's just trying to get by. But uh, very kind words. I thank you. Uh, we should definitely talk again. I'm grateful to have you as a friend now. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Justin Lassick, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.